Uh, <laughs> so, all right. Well, I guess I'll start from the beginning. I guess. Where, yeah, I like this. You're you're good at this, actually. When and where were you born? I was born in 1988 in DeKalb Medical Hospital, January 26th, 1988, uh, same birthday, not year, same birthday as Wayne Gretzky, which is my my claim to fame, Uh, Vince Carter as well, we share birthdays. Um, I used to be really proud of that one. I share a birthday with uh, Jack Lemmon. Oh, wow. Jack Lemon, That's relevant. Grumpy old man. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> good for you, man. That's good. Hey, no, I yeah, used to be, I used to be proud of this one, but as of recent events, I'm not, but Ellen DeGeneres is another January 26th birthday, but she's in a little what bit happened? of hot water these days. She, <laughs> you don't know do? the Ellen DeGeneres story? No, dude, I know nothing about the world. I know nothing about the world. I know a bunch of people stormed the Capitol building the other day, which I found fucking, well, I don't even want to comment on it. I, I know yeah, that. that's a whole different can of worms. <laughs> um, well, it's not really, I mean, it's not, it's not worth spending more than, you know, 30 seconds about, but basically, you know, Ellen the Capitol been... building? <laughs> no. <laughs> she should have. Um, but no, she's just, it's just, it's just all these stories that come out this year about, of, from like personal assistants and old employees that used to work with her, that she's just like one of the worst people in the world, apparently how she treats people. So she's just kind okay. of, she's, she's had this cancel culture kind of come after her with all these stories of it's, it's all, it's all seemingly fairly petty stuff, but it, you know, I guess if you're she's worth that like much money and you chicks, no, 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 no. It's like illegal. Okay. She just is kind of a, she's a, she's kind of a, just not a good person basically. And I think it's just juxtaposed with with her public image as being like super fun, lighthearted Ellen who dances on her show. Like it's, that's all just a joke. But anyway, um, yes, that's my life story. How's that? (laughs) You want to keep going with Ellen's talk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, No, no, no. So yeah, January 26th, 1988, uh, a day that will live in infamy. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I was born to to, to cab medical hospital. Interesting. Yeah, the cat medical. Uh, my first, well, well, at the time, my parents were living in Lawrenceville, Georgia, which is about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour east uh, of Atlanta towards Athens, right. where, yeah. where we went to college. Um, and so, let's see, I guess it kind of, I mean, sadly, it kind of all starts with my parents getting divorced when I was really young. I was like just over a year old when my parents split up. So I have zero memory or recollection of them being together. Um, yeah, I didn't you were that young. Yeah, man. No no recollection whatsoever of of my parents being together. And the funny thing, though, or the interesting thing, is that not only that, but I actually have no recollection prior to my step-parents. Like, so my whole existence is I have my mom and my stepdad who are still married, and I have my mom, my dad and my stepmom, and they're still married. So it's like... Mm-hmm. In, in, a, in a weird way, I've always kind of, I've always kind of felt like an outcast from the divorced children's kind of club, if you will, or like fraternity. Cause right. you know, I've, I've actually had more parents like, than, yeah. than most people. Um, now I had plenty to go around. I should have given you, I could give you an extra dad or something. Yeah. That was um, <laughs> um, but anyway, like that was always normal well, to me, right? Like, he two, treated me very well at those tailgates for, you know, many, they, yeah. for, Three years. Yeah, yeah. He, he was a he was a he's he's a good he's been a good guy for me. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, so it's always been kind of a weird upbringing as far as 
you know, two Christmases, two birthdays, visitation where I'm going back and forth and just kind of, kind of odd, right? Like that was, that's kind of where my, my life started, I guess, was just thinking that that was the norm and realizing, you know, oh, actually like you actually, you have, you have uh, parents that stay together in these cohesive family units, or you have parents get divorced. Like our, our buddy Lenny's parents got divorced when he was much older and seemingly probably has a bigger impact on kind of your psyche. And so I, I don't know, I've always battled with it. I mean, I definitely deal with things today that emotionally speaking, I think that do stem from being a child of divorce, but then there's also these other things that I think I got lucky with and I don't have to deal with. So that's, um, biggest moment of my the, the first big moment of my life, I would say was probably my parents getting divorced. Uh, as you, you would were, imagine, you were saying, you were saying that you don't have a recollection of prior to your step parents. Is that what you're saying? No. Yeah. I was, so I was like, in my, or, no, I was in my dad's second wedding. I was in my dad's second wedding. I was four years old. So if you can, if you can do the math, you know, they were obviously dating pretty much pretty soon after my parents got divorced. Right. And it's the same, same situation on my, on my mom's side. Like my stepdad and my mom got married right around the same time between the, when I was three to five years old. So they moved on pretty quickly. Um, and I have zero recollection prior to, to them being in my life. So kind of interesting. And both parents lived in like the Atlanta area. So you were bouncing back between the two of them. So that was like, on, yes. from the jump, that was just your normal existence. Yeah, it was, you know, my my mom and my dad lived in Lawrenceville in a little house. And then when they split, my mom was working in Buckhead at a law firm where she met my stepdad. And so they moved in, in Buckhead, which is where I spent most of my time growing up. And my dad moved to Stone Mountain with his, with his, uh, I guess, girlfriend at the time, my now stepmom. Um, so yeah, the, the Stone Mountain to Buckhead track is where I went a lot from, you know, ages two until 12 or so until I moved up to Roswell. And then you moved up, I met you in high school. You were probably, we were probably 15. Uh, I, so, well, I, I think I want to, I want to, I don't, I don't want to gloss over the, the middle part of how I ended up in. It's intended, no, no, I guess, because that's a pretty... No, I'm just... I'm, yeah, yeah, I want to get back into your childhood. I just wanted to set that point. So it was, but it was like oh, a sophomore yeah, yeah. year yeah, yeah. or something that we met? Second second semester, sophomore year. Yeah. Second semester, sophomore year. Okay, that we met. Yeah. And then your parents... Yeah, the, so reason, that, the reason for that was your dad... Your dad... No. Your mom and stepdad moved up to Roswell, where I, where I grew up. Yeah, we moved up to Roswell in 2001. And I always remember that because it was right after 9-11. So it was like the end of the end of 01 is when we moved up to Roswell. Um, and my dad at that time was in Snellville, Georgia, which is just another east side suburb in Gwinnett County. Um, mm -hmm. And he had had he had had uh, my little sister at that point. She's 10 years younger than me. Uh, she was born yeah. in 1998. Mm -hmm. um, so that was interesting, you know, having a, a I you know, my mom was married before and had my older sister who was about seven years older. And then I yep. had a younger sister, 10 years younger. So it was always, it was always interesting to kind of have that 17 year gap and that I was kind of, yeah, middle of. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was, so yeah, you and I met sophomore year in high school. I don't remember how, I guess it was through Lenny. Um, but yeah, we started hanging out a bunch in high school, obviously. But, uh, what do you remember about my, your, like, go ahead. No, you go ahead. 
what do you remember about that your child do reflecting back in your childhood so pre high school so eighth you said you moved up to Roswell in eighth grade which is like a perfect kind of not only just obviously the transition when you move but that's kind of like a natural transition point for everyone that like eighth grade area that's like you know height peak puberty kind of you go into high school a total change of life regardless of of moving houses what what do you remember about your childhood prior to that so like childhood childhood do you remember being a happy time unhappy time <sighs> do you remember being at what point did do you remember being kind of like hectic or thinking like this is weird that I'm bouncing between houses? How do you reflect on like your pre-pubescent childhood? Yeah, so I would categorize you know infancy through preteen as all every. I probably had every single flavor of emotion. I would say. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean it was a it was it was and it was a daily thing. It, it, it just depended on where I was, um, you know, what type of mood you know, my, you know, certain parents were in, um, what time of year it was, like it, it was, it was a, it was a total crapshoot. And I, and I can, I can dive deeper because, you know, I can, I can distinctly remember, well, first, I think the most important thing in, in all of this is that, you know, my mom is a recovering alcoholic. And so she, she was a, you know, fairly consistent, I wouldn't say heavy drinker. Like it wasn't something that it was something she, it was something she realized for herself. It wasn't something that, that, you know, she didn't get into an accident or she didn't, you know, hit me or anything that like was this aha moment. She just knew, she just, again, it was never, it was never abusive. It never really, I don't have any memories of her, you know, embarrassing herself or, or, or going outside of her bounds or anything. The only thing I do remember is there was a package store in Buckhead that had a drive through window and I can remember as a kid sitting in the passenger seat, maybe, you know, five, six, seven years old, something like, something like that. And I remember we would go there fairly, fairly frequently. And um, every time we'd go, the guy who was working the window would hand a bucket of lollipops into the car so I could pick out a lollipop. And I thought, this place is awesome. <laughs> and Dude, it turns out my mom's just so, getting booze. <laughs> that is so sad. Yeah, not, just, not just no, i'm not saying like you i mean it's you never want to hear anyone's parents were an alcoholic when they were a kid but just just generally speaking that the liquor store like there were enough children going through the liquor store that <laughs> the dude working there was like man i gotta get some presents for these kids like <laughs> they're coming here every day dude yeah, man. oh my god Ugh, yeah yeah so but, that's, but that's the only that's the only memory that I have of her drinking, right? And, and I do remember well, taking that's a, a fond sip of memory, beer. Then never mind. I changed my mind. That's a very fond. What a great way to like color <laughs> child children's alcoholic upbringing. It's all about like yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, man. So that that was the that was the most vivid memory that I had. And I do remember taking like my first sip of beer. Like I got snuck a sip of a sip, a sip of beer when I was like really young, but I, but that was you know that that wasn't yeah. great. Um, but anyway, she, she came to that realization pretty early on in my life. Like, again, I was, I was not even 10 years old. I was probably seven at the oldest, uh, when she started going to AA meetings and getting, and getting kind of, you know, getting that part of her life out of the picture. But you weren't um, like drug into it from what you can remember. It wasn't like you had, there was like some sort of traumatic intervention or traumatic event that happened. No, like, no, no, no. Involved no. in that discussion, like, Hey, mommy has a problem or something like that. No, nope. it just. No, I was too young That's to comprehend it. I, now, now my sister's seven years older, so I'm sure she has a much. And, and her, her and I've actually never talked about it. Um, 
And I'd actually be interested to kind of chat with her on what her her experience was because she was probably ten to fifteen years old somewhere in there, right? Um, which so she had a better understanding of of, of my mom's problems. Um, but I don't, I, yeah, I'll, I'll probably, I need to make a note of that to chat with her about that at some point. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that was, and your so your mom is married, remarried to your stepdad at this time, right? Yes. And he still drinks, doesn't he? Oh yeah. Yeah. He's, he's never been, but at the same, at the same so that's what, that's what I was going to say is that my mom and my dad are very different across the board, which is why they got divorced. Uh, and right. that's one big factor is that he doesn't really drink. He doesn't drink. He he doesn't have an addictive personality at all. Um, and Bill, my stepdad, is is sort of the same way. Like he does, he he has hobbies he gets addicted to, but he was never really much of a social drinker. He was a workaholic, I think, is what he was addicted to. Is just work. He was a lawyer and Buckhead, and so as you can imagine, was a super demanding um, and rewarding job. And I think that he really thrived on the success, and he was just so focused on work that you know, the drinking thing just never, it didn't play into either one of their, those relationships that my mom, my mom had experienced with her first husband. And so it was like, that was another kind of awakening moment for her was that, okay, if my, my last two husbands or my, you know, my current husband and my past husband, this wasn't a part of our lives. And I really need to take a look in the mirror and figure out, you know, what am I doing? Yeah. It's just so interesting that you could be involved in a, a marriage where one person has a drinking problem. The other person continues to drink. Uh, yeah. and like, you can still be like six in successful recovery or whatever it's called. That's fascinating. Yeah. And, and you can imagine how hard those tailgates were, uh, in college, I would imagine, um, yeah. for her. I mean, she, she didn't get, she didn't show up a lot. Like she would come to me two or three a year, but I mean, that's a, you know, as we know, Athens is like the binge drinking yeah, I mean, capital of the world. Literally every, not just like the people around you at the tailgate, it's like the entire yeah. town of 200,000 yeah. people is drunk. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like you not sure if she loved game day. Yeah, I would imagine that. <laughs> or maybe not. Um, I mean, maybe there's a point you can get to if in recovery when, or like you, you feel like you're like, I don't want to say holier than thou because I, I don't want to think it's like a arrogant thing, but maybe there's a point you get to where like you're like solidified and comfortable in your sobriety and like you just go to something like a tailgate. It would also be a great place to go to also witness like, man, these people are a bunch of fucking losers and idiots. Totally. <laughs> like I could just imagine if you just had a camera on me during those days, it certainly wouldn't be like <laughs> – a great advertisement for alcohol consumption. <laughs> so maybe that's a good point, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I never I thought know. of it like that. Yeah, maybe maybe that was her. Uh, yeah, maybe that was her reasoning for going. Was like, man, yeah, I'm not maybe doing she that was like, slip, maybe on those Saturdays where she did show up. Maybe that Friday night before she was like about to go back to the bottle, and she's like, no, I just need to go to Georgia <laughs> to remind myself like how terrible drinking is. <laughs>
Um, I will say like on that side of, of my family back then it was, and, and this goes back to sort of ha- experiencing every flavor of emotion. Like there were times when my stepdad would come home from a bad day at work and, and he was a, like a terror as far as I think, you know, just again, nothing, nothing like physically abusive, but he was just a very short tempered guy when he was young, when he was younger. Um, and, and, you know, you know, you and, and Rochelle, my wife and, you know, my other friends never really saw that side of him when he was like still in the throes of, of Buckhead being a Buckhead attorney and like just really trying to work his way up in the world. But he was, was he still, was he still working when we were in college, when I met him or spent time yeah. with him irregularly? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't retire until he was pretty old. Actually, he was like his mid to late six or like 65 or 66, I think is when he finally retired. And the only reason he worked that long is because he just loves working. And I, I came right, to find yeah. that out. I mean, he, he's just, he's, he's very, very quickly bored and, and really loves working. And, um, yeah, when he was in his forties and kind of middle-aged, he was just, he was very high strung and he was very, he had a very short temper. Um, I can remember, you know, being at home after school when I was a kid and you know, it was just my mom and my sister and me, and I'd be watching television, and then he'd get home after five or whenever you know someone gets home from work, and and every day it was always that kind of like you do that quick audit of the room to make sure that like nothing's out of place or that you're not, oh, God. you know, you're not eating in the, in where you're not supposed to be eating. Like you kind of you kind of constantly checking because you knew that he could go wow, off any yeah. minute, and like, and so that was kind of like. That was a that was like a daily a daily thing for me, which was you know as I look back on it, like it just was normal, um, and and it's harder to look back on it now because he he really turned a leaf uh, at some point later in life. I don't know if it was just old age or um, or what have you, but when he when he started kind of winding down his career, he really took a, took a kind of like a deep breath and just and wasn't quite as as uh, high strung as he as he used to be. So that was one side where, you know, he'd come home one day and be super happy and we'd like go play golf together. And then he'd come home the next day to be pissed off and, you know, yell at me for doing something or he and my mom would get in the knockdown drag out argument, not physically, but just, you know, a verbal argument. Um, and, and the other days were great. And it was, you just never knew, you you never, you never knew. So you're kind of always on edge. Um, which was interesting, I guess. to say the least. Yeah, dude, it's so interesting. It's uh, man. It's like pains me to hear that. And then I think we're going to get into this topic. Uh, I imagine, uh, towards the end of our conversation, but like, man, hearing stuff like that, like really makes me reticent about being a father myself. Cause it's like the last, I have those memories. I have memories of like that kind of anxiety. It's not the same, right? The source is what well, isn't the same. I didn't have a dad coming home from work, like angry and yelling. Um, although my mom would come home from work, like stressed out. I mean, cause she was in mm-hmm. different circumstances, right? She's a single mom, just as a lot on her plate and totally understandable. She would come home and be angry, but I have, or be stressed or anxiety ridden, but I have memories just like that of my childhood that aren't positive where it's like anxious and kind of scary. And I guess that's just part of life. And I guess there's certainly an argument to be made that like that there's a positive to be gained from that or like that promotes growth of a child in some ways. But I don't know, man, I I don't want to bring a being into this world and then be responsible for like the most formative years of their life. The only time of our lives that truly is like innocent where there are no responsibilities where it's like, you know, I, I my job now is to like raise this little kid, this little baby who's mm-hmm. now becoming a toddler. And really I, I, 
view myself, like my primary role with her is just to give her a stress-free, fun, educational first few years of life. Like more than anything, it's just like no stress on the brain, no stress on the soul, enjoy time, uh, like don't be fearful, just, you know, this is this little innocent being who didn't choose to be here. And this is how all children are. Yeah. Right? None of us chose to be born. It just seems so gross when like all of a sudden this being is born into like an anxiety ridden, scary environment. It's like, fuck. If you can't well, I don't guarantee. Wanna... And, sorry, yeah, I'm, I'm taking it too far, but yeah, I, I don't know. It, it makes me reflect on like, damn, it makes me ref just hearing your story i didn't think about my story and then i think about you know potential future stories it's like man i feel like it'd be really nice if we could live in a world where every kid at least for the first you know at least until like puberty is granted like a sense of or a and um like a safe kind of carefree environment i know obviously that's like very utopia type situation but i don't know it just the last thing i'd ever want to do is to contribute to like some sort of anxiety when a kid is a child. Cause there's plenty of anxiety and stress and responsibility to worry about once you become an adult. seems like childhood yeah. should be reserved for carefreeness. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think, yeah, we will, we will get into that in a little while as far as parenthood uh, is concerned, but you know, it's interesting because it, because it wasn't, it wasn't all bad, right? I think the majority was good. Oh, yeah. Like there, there every Friday night we'd go see, we'd go see a movie and, you know, it was, a, it was a relatively, like on the whole, like a relatively positive experience. But I think that almost right. in retrospect is what was so fucked up about it because I would let my guard down for, you know, a few days or a week and then like right. all shit would hit the fan again. And it was like, man, I, I can never like right. find that. I can never find that, that medium ground where I wasn't super anxious or super relaxed. It was always kind of bouncing back and forth and vacillating around. Whereas if you're, if you're grow up in like a purely abusive household, like where you're I mean, it sounds terrible, but you kind of, you kind of get used to it and you kind of just put up your defense mechanism. Whereas I was, I was constantly back and forth. Right. But anyway, but anyway, so that was, so that was on so much better. You just beat your ass every day when you came home. Well, it toughened me up a little bit. But anyway, so that's, that's just, that's just half, that's just one side of my family too. Right. So that was, that was just, that was my, that was my Monday to Friday every other weekend existence. And then, you know, I go see my dad um, every other weekend, you know, normal kind of divorce parent visitation policy where you basically just see your, your father every other weekend, um, you know, Friday to so Sunday. So that was the policy you were with your, your mom and your stepdad base the vast majority of the time. And you'd see your dad yes. every other weekend. Yep. That was it. So that's what, like four days out of a month. So it's yep. like four out of 30. Let's do the math. That's two fifteenths. So a minimum. I don't know what the exact numbers there are. One seven, one over 7.5. Yeah. I don't know. So like maybe 12.5% of your childhood or something. Yeah. sounds about right. I mean, obviously there, there were like little, there were literally games and stuff during the week where obviously I'd see him. Right. Um, but as far as, yeah, as far as like hanging out with him for a night or for a day, yeah, it was very, very infrequent. Um, and the, the funny thing with that is it's so funny because I, I, I've always thought about this because I have a horrible work ethic and I, and I know that you and Lenny talked about this on that since deleted podcast, I think, but, um, 
you know, I got a lot of, I got a lot out of that because Lenny and I are very similar in that sense. We, we kind of do the bare minimum to get by a lot of times, you know, we, oh, we yeah, don't have this, yeah. we, we don't have this burning passion inside of us to like self-motivate and it's not something I'm proud of, but it's something I've just never understood because I, I grew up with my dad who, um, put himself through college, uh, has multiple degrees, um, worked two jobs. Like he's, he is a self-starter. Like if you look up self-starter in the dictionary, that's what he is. Like he, he, he wasn't given anything. He works for everything that he's, that he's got. And I'm just such the opposite way. And Bill, yeah. my stepdad was a similar, was a similar situation where he put himself through law school and he, you know, they're all just like these, these very motivated male influences in my life. And it, it all just rubbed, it all just went way over my head. And then none of it dripped down to me, which is such an interesting such an interesting thing because you know my weekends with my dad now you know if you have that context of him is you, know, you think okay he's got he's got his son for two days we're going to do nothing but like go to the carnival and like play catch and do all those like romanticized father-son things but i would go over to his house and just do chores like because that's what he did like it, he, he worked his ass off during the week i get over there on friday and he would need my help like mowing the lawn as i'm like eight years old and that was it like right. we would just work and i know great right. we would we'd find time on Saturdays to watch college football. And that was kind of the trade off. It was always like, all right, I'm going to go over there and work my ass off on Friday night, you know, doing housework. And then maybe like Saturday morning, there's something we have, you know, to go run an errand to Home Depot and then come back and fix something. And then I'll get like a nice reprieve of watching football and then I'll go home on Sunday. And so my, even, even my moments with my dad were very like, I didn't like going to my dad's house because I knew it yeah, as so a kid. I was like, I'm going to go. Question. Did you look forward to that? Like, did you look forward to those times or not? No, not at all. I hated it. I mean, I, I hated going over there because it was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to work my ass off and I hate working. And I, I almost wonder if that's what kind of instilled this, this lack of work ethic in me was I was, you know, the only times I could see my dad is when I was like half the time doing yard work. And I was like, shit, man, right. I just want to go chill. It's the weekend. I'm a kid. Like I don't want to go work. And not, but that's just how he, that's just how he operated. And I, and it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't anything, anything super negative. I don't think because like, he would find these little moments for us to do stuff, but it was just, it was a weird, again, kind of the smattering of emotions. It was always, I experienced every single thing throughout my childhood. It was like, you know, the, the pure joy of hanging out with my dad at like an SEC championship football game or like going out on a Friday night with my stepdad and my mom to go see a, uh, you know, the big movie. And like, I had all those highs, I had all the lows of like doing, doing arduous work with my dad versus like being scared of my parents getting in a fight at, at home. Like, so it, it, anything and everything in between, like it was, it was you, you right. name it, I felt it. Right. Did your what was your dad's relationship with your stepmom like? I don't have I ever met your stepmom. Your uh, dad's wife. I have at, the, no at our wedding, her picture of who she is. I imagine you ran into her at our wedding, but then you probably weren't formally introduced, obviously, because there's you know hundred people like, there. Wasn't my brain wasn't exactly like forming long term memories. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, Interesting. Okay. No, so, but what was that relationship like, or like juxtaposed yeah. to your 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 other your other parents? Yeah. So it was it was the exact opposite, right? Like she, Gail, is my stepmom. She's been my stepmom as long as I can remember. Like I said, I was in their wedding when I was like four. Mm-hmm. Um. So she comes from a big family in in Tennessee. Um. She's a she's been a well. She actually retired this year, but she was a. Uh, School for the deaf uh, teacher for like thirty years. She worked with kids with special oh, okay, needs. Yes, yes. Yep, I remember this. 
Um, and so she's, she's like, she committed her entire professional life to like helping others and like helping children. Like she's a saint in a lot of regards. Um, and so obviously going over to their house, it was, you know, my dad was super, was despite the fact that he put me to work, he was, and he was very demanding of my schoolwork and all this kind of stuff that I saw as negatives when I was a kid, still very loving, you know, non, non-confrontational, um, fairly chill from a, you know, psyche perspective. I mean, he was high strung as well, but for like different reasons, not from like a, not from like an anger perspective, but he just, he expected a lot of me because he, he expected a lot of himself. And so, but anyway, like very, very relaxed environment. I I wasn't checking the room when they came in to like make sure everything's set up. So that was a reprieve, like to go over there and not have to like look over my shoulder all the time. So that was nice. Um, But yeah, totally different environment, you know, much more, much more peaceful, but you know, harder working, I guess. Whereas in, in my mom's house, I was lazy and just kind of didn't do anything, but I was also on edge. So it's kind of this weird right. dichotomy, if you will. It sounds like almost yeah. like your dad was like, I don't want to say overcompensating. I don't want to like speak for him or anything, obviously, but it's like, he was really trying to like be the dad guy. Like he knew he wasn't in your life on a consistent basis. And, he probably thought like you need that paternal influence. So it's like when you come to dad's house, you work hard, you watch football. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, yeah. it's like, he was like really cramming in that like paternal influence. We, you know, yeah. we, we, we work in the yard and we watch sports, you know, but you know, yep. we, no, no, there's no play time until work is over type of deal. No, a hundred percent. I think, he, I think he could sense too, that I wasn't really, I mean, my stepdad was, was a great provider. I mean, obviously he made, he made a good living for himself and kept a roof over my head. And I think that my, my dad never had to worry about that aspect, but I, I, I do think he got a sense pretty early on that, that Bill wasn't going to be the loving father figure. Like he was going to keep food on the table and, you know, keep clothes on my back and, you know, send me to private school and all this kind of expensive stuff and give, you know, give me these experiences that my dad at the time probably couldn't afford, but he knew that he wasn't going to get, I wasn't going to get all the other fatherly stuff. And so, yeah, he, and he only had, you know, four or five days a month to cram it in. So yeah, definitely. Cram it in, yeah. Yeah. It was interesting for sure. It is interesting. It's interesting too, man. Like, um, I have this quote on my Facebook, um, that says, uh, what is the quote? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a famous quote. And I don't know if it's attributed to anyone in particular, but it, it, the quote is essentially like, uh, hard times create hard men, hard men create soft times, soft times create, what is it? Hard times create hard men, hard men create soft times, soft times create weak men, weak men create hard times, hard times create weak men. You know, this side goes back. You know, basically when times are hard, it creates, you know, resilient people. Those resilient people become, you know, strong and powerful, but then, you know, they kind of rid the world of most of the problems. And so the world becomes easier and then hmm. when the world becomes easier, the people in that world become easier. But then when the people in that, or, you know, softer, but when the people in that world become softer, then the world becomes shittier again. And then, but then when the world becomes shittier again, then, you know, people need to step their game up and become resilient. And then the cycle continues. Um, and uh, without like getting into, the, uh, without making like a political thing about modern times or COVID or, or shit like that, I, I, it's interesting to hear you say, like, compare yourself to Lenny, like, I've never had great work ethic. It's interesting. I feel like I, I'm the same way in a sense. Like, I definitely, at this point in my life, the last three to five years of my life, 
I would kind of, I, I totally resonate with you. Like I have no burning desire in me whatsoever. I have no sense <laughs> of like, dude, I, you know, I work as a nanny and I love what I do. Like I genuinely love, you know, this quote unquote job that I have hanging out with this baby all day. But a large part of that is because it's just like chill and easy. I'm making, you know, as much money as I was used to make as a teacher, um, mm-hmm. which was an extremely demanding job. Like, I'm uh, beyond demanding, I think, in a lot of ways. I think most people would agree with that, not just my opinion. And then now mm-hmm. I have this super chill job, but it's like I have no desire to go back to that, like, feeling of being overwhelmed by work. Um, and even when I reflect on, like, okay, obviously I can't, I'm not going to be this little girl's nanny forever. Like, what do I want to do next? Dude, <laughs> I've been thinking about this for a year. And, like, I have no interest in doing anything. But as far as like a career is concerned, right? I have no desire to become a lawyer or a firefighter or a doctor or even go back to teaching or whatever. Like there's just nothing. Like I have no interest in any sort of traditional professional pursuit that I can think of. Um, But I don't, it's, we had different upbringings, but I I was raised by a single mom, but I think my, my mom did a fantastic job of making sure we have everything we needed. It wasn't, I don't know. It's interesting. I I went to this, I think my upbringing did contribute to like this kind of like burning fire and work ethic right out of high school. But for some reason, the last few years, I don't know, maybe once I kind of uh, obtained the things, like the traditional things I was supposed to obtain, it was like, uh, I remember coming out of college and feeling like, yeah, I was raised by a single mom. And I did have, you know, I've talked about a thousand times in the podcast, but the whole OCD thing, like that really did ruin my, uh, I want to say ruin my life, that really did contribute to a a very difficult childhood. And on top of that, the whole single mom thing and not having a ton of money. So I feel like I was shot out of high school or college graduation, like shot out of a cannon, like, yeah, I'm going to go contribute and try to help save the world or whatever. And I got my master's degree immediately and did all this like nonprofit work and different teaching experiences. And then it's like once I did all of those things and like, I guess, proved to myself that I could do those things for the past three to five years. I've kind of been like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. (laughs) I'm good. And there's a lot of other, that's very simplistic way. Like I have a lot of like misgivings about like the system, quote unquote, of education and nonprofit and government and all that. It's far more nuanced than that. But generally speaking, I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, it's like, I don't get, did you just get burned out? Did you just get burned out? Part of it's burnt. I got burnt out on the teaching specifically. Part of it definitely is that, but another part of it's like, um, I'm I'm formulating these thoughts as we're having this conversation. Like I haven't thought out this specific line of thought uh, specifically, but I think another part of it's like, like it's not that hard really to like make a living and survive in America. Like there's not like a lot of, there's no struggle really, you know, it's like, especially for white guys. Yeah. For like (laughs) white guys who grew up in the suburbs and went to like a nice suburban high school, like you kind of college is kind of a given. And then once you get a college degree and you don't have like a drug addiction or something like getting a good paying job is not that difficult. That's why, that's why I mean by the quote, it's like, you know, I think life in the 21st century in the, in the Western world, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of places around the world where life is absolutely fucking horrific on a daily basis. But mm-hmm. like 
life in the United States of America and the Western developed world in the 21st century, like there's not as much as people like to bitch and moan constantly about kind of political issues or whatever. I think life is pretty fucking easy. Um, and so it's, it, it comes from me. Don't get me wrong. I'm not blaming my lack of like self-motivation and work ethic. I, at the end of the day is, 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 is a me problem is an Alex problem. It's not based on external factors, but I do believe for the most part, like generally speaking throughout human history, like great accomplishments, and like these uh, great, like fiery pursuits are primarily motivated, motivated by like your environment and a need to do so. Uh, mm-hmm. And life is easy. So it's like, what am I, you really have to self-motivate yourself and find a, a struggle or a challenge to pursue. And in the absence mm-hmm. of that struggle or challenge, you know, it's not like I'm being chased by lions in the woods or like fighting or being repressed by some like, you know, tyrannical government. And I don't know, it's, it's it's no excuse to not like take advantage of this one life we're given and, and pursue each day to the fullest. But I mean, I'm not pursuing each day to the fullest. Doesn't sound like you think that you're like pursuing each day to the fullest. But I think a large part of that is because like we're not we're not struggling to survive, and most people aren't struggling to survive. I think that's the primary motivator right. for for like uh, achievement or whatever. Um, just to take yeah. oh, just kind of just a. Uh, there's a parallel example, like, like my, my, my sister who is, you know, my only full sibling, my younger sister, she, here's a perfect like juxtaposition of case studies, me and her exact same DNA, exact same environment we were raised in. Um, we both experienced uh, major illnesses at pretty much mm-hmm. the exact same time in our life. They began around like age 11, 12. I developed OCD. She developed diabetes. I've kind of overcome my, illness, quote unquote, both through pharmaceuticals and through therapy and through like, just, I guess, kind of willpower, but she has type one diabetes. Like there is no cure for that. She has to take insulin for the rest of her life. And so every day she wakes up and she has to confront a existential struggle, like an essential organ in her body doesn't function. Like if she doesn't, if Mm -hmm. she's not on top of her shit every day, she'll die. And, mm-hmm. dude, she got her master's degree and she's, like, 20. She found her own nonprofit when she was 19. She's, like, she's worked for the U.N. across, you know, Latin America. She's worked and she's done all this amazing shit. She ran a refugee camp for Syrian refugees, like, when she was 25 or something. You know, now she's about to finish up her Ph.D. <laughs> like, Damn. We, we're the exact same person, essentially. But she has to confront, she has to fight a battle to stay alive every single day. You know, I yeah. just wake up and I'm just, you know, a fucking bro, <laughs> you know, and I don't have <laughs> to struggle. And I have, you know, I mean, I've been blessed with good physical health. I've been blessed. I don't think I'm fucking Einstein or anything, but I've been blessed with, you know, a brain that allows me to, you know, pursue anything that I really realistically want to pursue. Um, I don't right. have to fight for my survival on a daily basis, but she does. Um, and she's right. achieving all of this shit. So I, I think struggle is the motivator for like achievement or whatever um that's a great that's actually i mean that's actually a really good segue i think because i think you're 100 percent right i think that it's kind of a fight or flight uh kind of mentality and and i didn't i didn't i mean i i haven't really caught up with morgan obviously or like kept up with her endeavors but knowing that she's doing all this amazing stuff you know a a isn't a surprise but i guess b tying it back into that daily struggle 
is interesting yeah. because, you know, kind of the byproduct of all the stuff I've been talking about with my upbringing was that I was a, I was a mischievous troublemaking kid and I got into a lot of trouble in elementary school. I got, you know, nothing, nothing devious or anything, but, um, I was just, I was class clown. I was constantly, you know, distracted. I, I had trouble kind of staying focused in school and, and, and the acting out kind of just kept festering and festering until I eventually, um, you know, was expelled from my private high school in, in 10th grade. And that's how you know, the story is, pass, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and at that point, you know, I was a, I was a C student and was didn't really have much prospect as far as like what I was going to do after high school. Not that I was going to you know, go work in the coal mines or anything, but you know, <laughs> I, I had zero, I had zero motivations, right? Like I just right. got kicked out of school and I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on the kick out of school story. Cause it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, well, it's actually funny, right? Like I, so I went to a private high school, um, private high school. You have to buy, it's very much like college. You have to buy your own books. You have to, buy a uniform to wear, which that's not like college, uh, well, certain <laughs> colleges, I guess. Um, and so we had, we had, you know, this cons- we had this consignment shop essentially. So you bought all your books in ninth grade, you sold them back at a discount and then you'd go buy used books, you know, the next year or whatever. Um, a buddy of mine at the time, and this is in 10th grade had rummaged through the lost and found for books <laughs> and then taken them to the consignment shop and got a check out of it. And I was like, it was like a, it was like a $120 check, which, you know, when you're, when you're 14, 15 years old, $120 might as well be like winning the freaking lottery. And so this kid, this kid comes up to me and is flashing this check around. I'm like, what the hell? How'd you get that? And he tells me a story of how he did it. And so I'm like, well, that sounds pretty easy. And and again, at this point, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very impressionable. I've been, you know, 10 plus years of kind of dealing with all these different emotions at home. And I'm, and I've kind of consistently, tested the boundaries sort of. And so I had zero impulse control. I was just like, I yeah, mean, that's a good idea. That big of a deal. I don't think you need to qualify it. This is like a pretty fucking <laughs> standard. I think any 14 year old would do this. This isn't like okay. well, any behavior. Right. Like it wasn't my ideas, but I try, I'm trying to get at. And so, right. but, it seemed, but it seemed very easy, but sure enough, I, I try to, I try to, to do the same thing. And it turns out that one of the moms who's working in a consignment shop recognizes the name on the book. That I tried to turn in and she knows it's not that I'm not that person. And so she reports yeah. me to the, to the principal. And within a week's time, I'm expelled from the school. Cause it's a private school. Like it's they right. have very high standards in terms of like, yeah. And like obviously a public school, they're going to roll, they're going to you know slap you on the wrist or something like that. If that, whatever the equivalent of that is at a public school. Um, and so, yeah, I got kicked out of school. I'm 15 years old, the middle of 10th grade. And yeah. that's my first, that's my first wake up call. Like, like, up to that point, you know, acting out, you know, getting, getting pulled out of class, getting a detention, like all that stuff's kind of just, you know, that doesn't matter. But that, that was that first aha moment was like, wow, I just got kicked out of school. And it's not, you know, that's a big freaking deal when you're that age. And then, you know, my dad has to pay, has to flip the bill for the rest of that semester. And it was like early second semester. So he's going to be paying, you know, thousands of dollars that are going to be essentially burned. Um, yeah. And so that was a big moment. So at that point, you know, I get, I get Centennial in the middle of the semester in high school. And you can, I mean, we can all go back to when we were 15 years old and how emotionally, physically awkward we were. And me just showing up in high school, it was like a incredibly daunting task. Like, yeah, it, you know, I had to get friends immediately. I had to figure out, 
you know, and this is like a had massive deal- public high school. Like to show up, in, I didn't really thought about that as far as you're concerned. Like you just show up in the literally the middle of the four year journey, and there's like right. thousands of kids. Right, and it's not, and I, I don't I don't even get the benefit. I don't even get the benefit of like first day of school, like in in the fall, right. where it's like, hey, here's the right. new kid who came from so and so. It's like no, I'm it's it's like the fourth week of 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 spring semester, and I'm showing up in all these classes that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like showing up in these classes, and people are like, we've, we've had this class for like four weeks now. Who is this guy? And so I already come in with this baggage of like, who the fuck, who the fuck is this guy? And, and funny story, Lenny loves, Lenny loves to give me, give me shit for this still to this day. But, you know, those first few weeks at Centennial, I would eat lunch in the bathroom because I didn't know who to sit with in, in the cafeteria. That's, that's, that's how terrified I was of the social situation I was in. Cause you, cause to your point, it's a giant high school. So you walk in the cafeteria, there's 700 kids in there. And you know, you guys, you guys have all been going to middle school together for the most part. Like y'all have Fucking your clicks at this point. School, some of us. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all, y'all know who you, who you are. Y'all hang out with the same Hunter people. And, and I were in kindergarten together. Yeah. So like, there's nothing but a bunch of those groups just sitting around. And that was the most, you talk about like scary, like that was, terrifying walking into that cafeteria that first day. And so I, yeah, I just ended up just, I would go uh, after fourth period or whatever, right before lunch, I'd go grab my lunch. I'd go into a bathroom stall and I would just eat my lunch in the bathroom stall for like a solid, I God, I probably did that for at least two to three weeks. And then I finally latched on to this, this Asian group of, of uh, kids that I think I, I met know. one through I remember Lenny telling the story. Yeah. <laughs> Lenny, Lenny loves this part of the story too. I think I think one of them was in like my carpool in my neighborhood or something. Um, uh-huh. And you know, and obviously Asian Asian families have very different cultures. But anyway, like I I I you know I guess I befriended this this one kid. I can't remember his name. Um, and then he introduced me to all of his, his like Korean friends at lunch. Right. So I sat with the, the Asian kids for like another two or three weeks. And then finally, thank God lacrosse season started and I played lacrosse prior. And so I was going to, I was going to join a team at Centennial. And thankfully that was kind of a kick in the butt. It was like sitting in the bathroom stall until lacrosse season starts. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> so that was my introduction to Centennial High School. Yeah, dude, that's so crazy. I don't think about that at all. But th- and and I and I think of you as just like this social dude, you know. When I first met you, I remember thinking immediately, like, oh, where's who's this guy? He just seems like just like he's part of the 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 crew or whatever. Like, where did this kid come no. from? Like, I didn't ever. No, <laughs> I, I'm, I never. I have no recollection meeting you and thinking like, oh, this kid needs friends. I don't. I never thought that at all. But I mean, yeah, you think about it. You walk into just a standard giant public high school you know no one and you're you have the social skills even when you have normal social skills it wasn't like you're autistic or something you're just a normal kid God, how <laughs> daunting is that it's so daunting yeah it, yeah, yeah. And, it, and, and again it was lacrosse that saved me I, I if i if i didn't play a sport or if i didn't have that outlet um outside of school i mean god who knows who the hell knows man i don't know how long it would have taken me to kind of you probably figure things out <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> no kidding, right? <laughs> um. So yeah. So anyway, so that was the first month of existence at Centennial. Uh. And, and again, that was that was my first that was my first sort of adult moment, if you will, a kind of kind of like aha moment of right. You know, That's all, all the shit moment, that I've dude. Like, think about of all the daunting moments of your entire existence. That's probably still up there. 
Like it's we we can get into a couple more, but yeah, I've, I've got like three or four that come to mind, and that's definitely one of them for sure. That's, that's on the Mount crazy. Rushmore, if you will. That's crazy. Uh, but um, so yeah, so then lacrosse met Jimmy, obviously a good buddy of ours, Ford, um, who's probably my best friend, I would say at this point, and yeah, just kind of hit the ground running from there, and and I think thank God, thank God for that, because I think that we had this we had this really tight knit group of guys in high school that I was able that that I realized quickly that the the quote unquote friends that I had at Woodward and I was at Woodward for you know five and a half years, five and a half formative years. Like you're talking fifth grade to tenth yeah. grade. And yeah. how how quickly all the people there that I thought were my friends disappeared was would make your head spin. It was unbelievable. And I, and I don't know it's because if it's because I got kicked out so there's kind of this like, oh that kid's a bad kid. Like I but yeah, maybe a stigma. I don't yeah, think that's what it was. Like I still raped somebody. You like just <laughs> right, like a silly thing. Like I don't even think it's right. like a bad thing. <laughs> but those 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 friend those those people that I went to school with they disappeared almost instantly. And so to have and I realized it I realized it really early on that you know these guys that I'm hanging out with in high school at Centennial are a way closer to me just you know on a personal level. Be much more like my personality type. Much more. Um, my socioeconomic standing, because I was always like the, I mean, I, I've always been upper middle class, but I, I was going to school with kids who are elite at Woodward. And so I was always kind of like, yeah. it's weird to say, but I was always like the poor kid at Woodward. But then I go right. to a public school and we were more normal. Like we were more middle class, all of us, you know, there yeah. were obviously some of us who were, who were better off than others, but it was much, it was a much smaller spectrum than it was at Woodward. And so that played a big, a big factor into it. And yeah, that all those people who I, who I had spent, you know, the t- from the time I was, um, what would that have been, 11 to, or 10 to like 6, 15, like those people all just disappear from my life. And I don't have any contact with them. I, I, I see them on Facebook or Instagram, or whatever. Um, but yeah, they just went out the window. And so to come into Centennial with this, this solid group of, you know, I guess it's probably like eight or 10 of us at that time, um, yeah. was really, really huge. It got me on the, got me on the right track where I got my grades up and actually, you know, graduated with a reasonable GPA, was able to get into college and kind of the rest is history from there. Well, tell us about that. So, so fill in that gap from like, uh, sophomore year to college, like what was, tell us that, that story, like where you ended up and sure was a Um, unique non-traditional route. Yeah. So like I said, I think I, I think I left Woodward with like a 2.5 GPA or something. Um, and obviously, you know, Centennial had the, the the different scale as far as you know the the number scale i think so you, i think you graduated with like a a 92 gpa as opposed to like a 4.0 or right. something right, right um but the, the equivalent i think that i ended up so, I, so, I'm, so i'm already a year and a half into high school coming kind of dug myself a hole um and so i needed to get out of that hole i think i ended up graduating with like a three the, the equivalent like a, a a low three like a three two three 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 four somewhere in there um mm-hmm. which wasn't good enough to get into you know the Georges of the world at that time. So mm-hmm. pretty, pretty quickly realized that, you know, I was going to have to look outside of, of the big state school um, or like the, the better academic institutions. And so, you know, I, I didn't grow up, a, I grew up a Florida fan. So the, the dream to go to Georgia was not a dream that I really had. My sister had gone to UGA. And so I always had this fondness for Athens and um, you know, it's obviously one of the greatest college towns in the, in the country. But and, and and that's where everybody was going, right? That's where Jimmy. That's where Jimmy was going. That's where Everyone Lenny wanted. That was his. That was his dream was to go to Georgia, and so I just didn't share that. And so, thankfully, Lenny wasn't 
<laughs> again, kind of our our mere <laughs> personality type. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Thankfully, thankfully, he didn't perform very well in high school either. <laughs> um, it's so, so we crazy did though, not... dude. It's so crazy. Though, sorry to, to interrupt, but it's so crazy. Like you're talking about, like you entered sophomore year with a two five. So what do you like? You're fourteen, fifteen, and you're making decisions that will affect you the rest of your your life. I remember, dude, yeah. when we were in. And it was probably like this at Woodward as well. Like when we went when we were in middle school, they were. You know, I was always in like an advanced classes and we were taking classes in seventh grade that were going on our high school transcript, which ultimately affects <laughs> where you go to college, which ultimately Insane. affects like how you start like real life, like which would have an impact for the rest of your life. Essentially, it's crazy. <laughs> you're like having yeah, your balls insane. haven't even dropped and basically you're determining like what career you're going to have. It's fucking nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. That doesn't even factor in standardized testing and all that kind of stuff that yeah. you know, is a number you wear forever, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, anyway so yeah, Lenny and I, Lenny and I, Lenny and I formed a, bro- a brotherhood or a bond, if you will, over, you know, lackluster high school pro- academic performance and realized that we weren't gonna be able to follow our buddies to Georgia. So he and I, said, hey, let's go to Georgia State in the city. Um, easier to get into, um, close to home. And his plan all along, you know, was to take take the minimum uh, course or I guess to go there go there for a year and then transfer into Georgia. That was kind of his plan. Um, yeah. I, I think y'all, y'all covered the, the weird nuance that he got into with the forest. Well, you did too, actually. Y'all both went to forestry school. Yeah, we both did. To get, actually that get... episode has, that episode is in the ether. So yeah, just real quick, like, uh, normally the trans, I didn't go to Georgia either. I went to South Carolina. I've covered that story yep. a bunch regardless. I wasn't sure what my plan was and I went to South Carolina, but pretty soon into that, my time that I realized I wanted to, to transfer to, to Georgia as well. But typically you need a semester and a half of credit. So you need, uh, oh, excuse me, a year and a half. So you need 45 hours typically, but, Yep. If you if you apply to the forestry program because no one's fucking studying forestry, <laughs> they'll let you. Except in for Brian Kemp, our current governor. Oh really? He's an agriculture he, grad from UGA. <laughs> oh for real? That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'll share yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, if you apply to the forestry program and maybe the agriculture program as well, but definitely the forestry program because they're so desperate for for students, they'll let you in with just a year of college under your belt and so that's what Lenny and I did yeah we we declared of course forestry. and of course Lenny Bluestein is the one who found that loophole oh totally like yeah, only only true. Lenny only Lenny could find that loophole in in 2006 when like it wasn't readily available on the internet to like just track this stuff down there weren't message boards talking about this I don't know no. how he heard about it but well that's he the, caught that wind of it somehow I kept that was my point I kept trying to make with Lenny on the podcast that we did and ultimately never shared or shared briefly was that like he i he kept i think kept kind of getting offended that i kept saying that but my point was like no dude this is a type of intelligence like yes. just because you're not like doing you're not like the standard smart hard work, working guy like reading all of doing all of your homework and making good grades on the test like that's just one form of intelligence and in fact that form of intelligence is only applicable applicable <laughs> to like one kind of lifestyle, like staying on the path, like getting a corporate job or, and, you know, working hard on that, you know, being on the assembly line, being on that path. That's, yep. that's 
that's only that set of skills. In fact, in my personal opinion, like the Linny type of intelligence, like finding a loophole, finding an alternative route, getting creative, using your social skills. To me, that's actually a more viable form of intelligence, quite frankly. But yeah, of course it was Lenny. Once again, like how the fuck did he figure that out? I don't know. He just like plugged <laughs> into the cosmos or something. The problem, the problem is, the problem is since I didn't grow up a, a Georgia fan or have all this affinity to the school, like when he was when he was telling me about this plan, like I it just it never really resonated with me because I, that wasn't my like I, I I wanted to go to Georgia. I think at the time I was kind of like, yeah, that sounds cool. Like my buddies but were all there and they got home. a good journal. Yeah, they weren't gung ho. So I didn't jump on the I didn't jump on that that action plan. And so yeah. I got I got stuck unfortunately at Georgia State for an extra semester. Um which I actually I went I moved home. I was living in my high school bedroom. My and this is like the least sexy college experience when you're a sophomore in college. I'm living at home, working at a golf course and driving and or taking Marta into the city to do to oh, take I classes. That. To get a, I thought you still lived, yeah. I thought you were still living in Atlanta. Yeah, that's weird. No, no. Because your freshman year, you were on campus in Atlanta. Yep. Yep. And again, when you and I moved in together. Georgia State campus is not like the ideal college campus or anything, but still like you're living on your own in, in, it's in downtown Atlanta, you know, you're in a big city. Yeah. When we were adults, we were 18, we we were living on our own. Um, We had a, uh, an interesting roommate situation. I don't know if you want to get into that. Um, Uh, No. Yeah, so we, we but, but it was interesting. It was you and two other dudes. Yeah, but it was also interesting in the sense that it was the it was the 1996 Olympic Village, so it was essentially like an apartment that we had as freshmen, which right. is the not the normal not the normal freshman no. dorm experience. Yeah, um, so yeah, you, yeah, you kind of just get thrust into this adult life right out of the gate, and then I instantly go into reverse in my sec my first semester sophomore year, and I'm living at home again working and going to class it was very interesting um but it it was at that point that i realized okay i definitely i set my sights on georgia i definitely want to go there it just took me an extra semester unfortunately um but coincidentally enough dude it's like it's like discomfort and struggle promoting a change right like oh fuck i don't want to live at home my entire four-year existence i need to get the fuck or my four-year college experience i need to get the fuck out of here Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, that's, that was a seminal moment. It was, it's when I, and it, it, not only that, but at the time, my sister, my older sister had, had you know, had some struggles kind of getting her life started, I think, professionally. Mm-hmm. Like she, she was an art history major uh, at Georgia, tough to get jobs with that degree. She was kind of bouncing around, you know, not really knowing what she wanted to do, not making a lot of money. And she was still living in the house at the time. And, and so at that point, she was in her mid 20s living at home. And that was the constant daily reminder of I need to get oh, the hell yeah. out of here. I need to, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to be here when I'm 25. I need to, you know, get my ass in gear a little bit. And that was kind of that. It wasn't self-motivating. It was definitely environmental. Um, but it's that, that's the kind of thing that I need, like to, to kind of to light a fire because I'm not going to do it myself. I, I need something in my face to say, Hey, don't be like yeah. this. Or do you want to be, or, or go chase this? And so that's what, that's what uh, that sophomore, that first semester sophomore year was like was just, I'm going to work, make some money, get as good a grades as I can. So I can guarantee that I get in uh second semester. And then sure enough, got to Athens uh, in 2000, early or started 2008, I guess is when that was. Yeah. Second semester, sophomore year. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that transition like? Um, yeah. <laughs> 
It was interesting. Uh, so I actually reached out to an old Woodward, an old Woodward friend of mine who had a two bedroom apartment um, above the bookstore off of Baxter Street, oh, and he, Alex Busco. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. He, he's now a doctor, I believe. Um, really? Yeah. He went to med school down in Miami, and I think he. I. I don't. I haven't talked to him in years, but I'm pretty sure my last. LinkedIn or Facebook update I got is he's he went through medical school and is a doctor now, which is shocking because he was quite the yeah he did. he, 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 he was quite the no 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 he was very interesting uh, but he had an open bedroom so I moved in with him hadn't hadn't hung out with him in you know number of years but ended up working out from a you know just from a cost perspective as a furnished apartment um, didn't have to worry too much about location or anything like that, anything like that but you know I, I show up on campus I'm, and I'm just like I mean, and again, this is my lack of impulse control at the time and my lack of sort of, you know, level headedness, but I'm like so excited. I got all this emotion, right? Cause I, I spent the last semester, my head down, working, trying to get here, really wanting to get to Athens, really wanting to get that college experience. And within two months, I get a DUI arrest for drinking oh, on a Tuesday night. Right. I forgot it was yeah. that soon into it. I was thinking it was later on. No, no, no. Yeah, so I got there in yeah, I got there in January, and, and by the end of March, I was uh, suspe- had a, a suspended license and a DUI record. <laughs> so um, that was another moment, right? Like that was my that was my next like come to Jesus moment. My dad, you know, who at the time was was paying for my room and board. Uh, I was on a, on Hope Scholarship, thankfully, so I wasn't paying for tuition, which is amazing. Um, but you know, I needed I, I didn't have a job, like I needed money to pay for for books and for food and for housing and all that kind of stuff, and he immediately pulled the plug on that as soon as I got the DUIRS, like as a normal parent would. And yeah. that was, that was my fight or flight moment. And he was like, Hey, you know, I'm not paying for you anymore. Um, you can come home and live with us and go back to Georgia state, or you can, you know, stay there and take out financial aid. And so I was at the financial aid office the next day. And that was like one of those, wow. not even thinking about it, like not even thinking about it. Like I'm going to go take out a loan and stay here. And like, I'm not, I'm not going back home. Like I'm not going to backtrack. I fucked up. I'm going to figure it out. Like, but I'm staying here. And so, you know, I think over the course of the, of the rest of that semester, I was able to somehow focus on school and, and, um, you know, get my, get my life back to some, you know, to some standard. Cause you know, you're 20 years old, you get a DUI arrest, you think your life's over. I mean, that's just, yeah. you, you hear the horror stories, you know, of the, of the people who have DUI arrest, you can't get jobs, all this kind of stuff. And, and so that was, that was a tough time for sure. And, um, yeah, I, I spent the summer, stayed in Athens, took classes, and by the by the so start you, of the fall semester, out, I, you just took out enough. You just took out enough loans to cover your living expenses. So, so that's the thing. So, uh, my dad had already had already written me a check for the for the first semester, and so I I was paid. Okay. I, ha- I had enough money to get through the first semester, and okay. so by the end of by the end of that first semester, you know, it's, it's a problem. I mean, I, have you, I assume you find you've you've done financial aid in the past, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like, it's a process. Like, you don't, you don't just walk in and walk out with a check. So you know, yeah. there's multiple stages you have to go through. And so I, I, I had gone into that process with, with head, with head, with neck deep in it and was ready to like kind of, kind of hit go after that first semester. Cause I wanted to stay over summer to make up for lost time and, and take classes. And for, you know, I think for whatever reason, my dad saw my passion and my, my drive to want to stay at, at UGA and, and kind of saw that I was getting, sort of back on track that he actually ended up saying, Hey, like, 
I'll, I'll go ahead and, and continue to pay for you. So I never had to take out a loan. I got really close. Um, oh, but my wow. dad had a bigger, and, and this is where my dad's great is that he knew, he knew that me having a loan was going to hinder my growth post-college. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. he was like, you know what? I, I want to teach him a lesson, but I also don't want to give him, I don't, I don't want him riddled with debt when he graduates either. So yeah, you know, he's learned a little bit. And you're right. Yeah. And so I kind of, um, I'm super lucky and, you know, I was, I was fully prepared to, you know, to eat the cost and, and pay, pay the loan money and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't have to, thankfully. Yeah. That's a tricky one. I would, I, I don't know. I had to take out a little bit of loans as well. I worked, I had to take out loans, but I remember talking to Jimmy about it actually. Cause J- Jimmy and I came from, I think probably the most similar financial background with all of our friends. Um, sure. And Jimmy, I was work. I worked all four years of college. I always had a part-time job, you know, making like $7 an hour. And, yep. you know, Jimmy was you know, smarter than me financially. And certainly from a number standpoint, he was studying accounting. And I remember talking to him about it. Like at this point, I was like a senior. It was too late. But he's basically like, dude, it doesn't make any economic sense for you to be trading all of this time for $7 an hour. You should just take out <laughs> a loan. A, that's such a Jimmy, that's such a Jimmy yeah. thing. I love that. No, but it's totally true. It's totally true. 100%. 100%. Yeah, 100%. It's like, dude, why? Yeah. He's like, just take out loans um, that are, you know, at our income level are basically like interest free. And then when you're graduate college and have a college degree, then you're trading your time for basically like $30 an hour. And so yep. it just makes more financial sense. And like, this is college. You never get this time back. Like, why are you waking up at 6 a.m. when you're 19 years old to go work at like the library for 25 yep. bucks for your shift? Yep. You know, when three years from now, you'll be waking up at 6 a.m. And for your three for three hours, you'll be making, you know, two hundred dollars or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. So, yep. I mean, Jimmy, Jimmy's given me a lot of Jimmy. He's given me a lot of financial advice over the years, and I will always love having him in my corner because he yeah, knows exactly. He's what a he's sharp talking, dude. So. He's a sharp yeah. dude, and but it makes just uh, to tie it back to like what you're saying about like your father's thought process, you know, and and also kind of tying it to like potentially me having kids and having the concept of having kids in general. It's like, damn, the last thing I would want my I don't want my kid to be given everything on a platter. Like I if my kid were to go to college and that's a whole separate discussion itself as if would I if I would encourage my kid to go to even go to college. Um but if right. I were like the last thing I want him to do is like be saddled with, you know, a crippling debt when he gets out of there. But at the same time you don't yep. you, know, you don't want to hand your kid everything. But so that's, a, so that's a so that's a so that's really funny you mentioned that because you know my younger sister is ten years younger and I it's it's been it's been really eye opening for me because he's he's obviously I mean they're my those those parents are still together you know he's my dad has has raised my younger sister infinitely more than he raised me in terms of time spent and all that kind of stuff right um and he's and he's he's taken that same sort of you know, coddle has a bad, has a negative connotation, but he's taken that same sort of um, kind of bumper, you know, you know, bowling bumper approach to parenthood with her that I think mean, yeah. he was, he was trying to take to me, except more so because she's female, and so right. he yeah. is he has given her and and my stepmom as well. They've both given her every single um, opportunity and benefit to succeed. Like everything's been laid out for her, everything's been given to her. 
And I don't, I don't trust me. I have, I have zero, like, um, I don't know. I'm like, no, 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 um, envy of it because I think that, you know, a lot of, a lot of, yeah, no resentment, but a lot of, cause a lot of the things that I dealt with from like a, and, and she never got in trouble either. Right. Like she's, she's, you know, model citizen, never experiencing hardships. And in my opinion, and my dad and I have talked about this, so I don't mind sharing it. In my opinion, it's, it's that lack of diversity or not lack of diversity, adversity that has made her much more like emotionally immature. Like she, she, she just turned 23 this past week. And, you know, in my eyes, I still look at her as like a 17 or 18 year old. Cause just cause she right. hasn't had any, any real world experiences that have kind of thrown her on her ass and like forced yeah. her to figure things out. And so to your point about like, you, know, you don't want to give your kid everything. Cause I think that's the negative downside is that they don't learn things on their own. But in my situation, I think, and, and I don't think my dad had the, had the, awareness or the the foresight to see this but i think that i'm just a different personality type that if i had everything stripped away from me like that and had to go into debt and had to kind of overcome these things i don't have that work ethic or that mentality maybe to like respond well to it and so i think in 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 retrospect i needed that kind of coddling or else i would have been set off on a different path whereas i think the other folks are more mentally strong or more like self-motivated could probably deal with a little bit more adversity than maybe i could I don't know, but yeah. I also dealt with adversity in other areas too. So it's tough to, I don't know, it's tough to kind of, you know, draw a clear line there. Yeah. But this seems to be the theme of the, of our entire conversation is this whole like adversity promoting growth or maybe not um, because, you know, back to the quote I was saying, like hard times create hard men or successful men or whatever people. Um, but there's also the counter argument. It's like, not every person who had a difficult childhood, like, pulled themselves by their bootstraps and became, like, you know, a neurosurgeon. There's also, like, yeah. there's also <laughs> plenty of them are now, like, sucking dick for heroin in some, like, back alley, you know? It's, it's not, yeah, uh, yeah, it's not yeah. just, like, a one-to-one equation, like, struggle equals growth. So, yeah, it's yeah. There's just, there's but, no, and there's there's also there's also, pl- there's also plenty of people, and actually, I, this is going to be a total aside, but I wanted to bring this up to you during this conversation this is a bit of an aside, but it's connected to what I'm saying. There's also the other argument, like people that were raised, not even necessarily in opulence or anything, but that were raised very comfortably, like, um, you know, with good families and that everything paid for those people become, you know, those people also end up sucking dick for heroin in the back alley, you know? <laughs> oh, hundred uh, percent. Totally. Dude, how many people there's this, uh, Lenny texted me actually this past week. Um, and I won't mention the name, uh, but said, like, uh, so-and-so died. Hey, did you hear so-and-so died? Um, and, dude, this is like, I started, I was like, holy shit. And that's always crazy when I hear someone our age that we went to, you know, that we grew up with or went to school with died. It's crazy to hear that. But, dude, how many fucking people do we know growing up that we're in like plus or minus two or three years of our grade, our age have died of either suicide or fucking opioid overdose. There's dude, it's gotta be at this point, it's gotta be like 20, like 20 kids that we went to high school with basically, or like approaching it's in the double digits for sure of kids that died prematurely of essentially, once again, I don't know the specifics of all of their deaths, nor do I know the specifics of all of their lives, obviously, but I do know, like, generally speaking, the type of families they came from um, and, like, the 
generally speaking, the environment in which they were raised or like opportunities that they had in front of them. Um, and like all of these kids were, you would think like raised comfortably and had plenty of opportunities to make something of themselves, go to college, get a job, whatever. Dude, and it's like a shocking number of these people have either killed themselves or died of a drug overdose. And it's, you know, opioids. It's crazy. It's fucking well, I crazy. I can, I can go, I can go one step further because, you know, going to a private school and you, you, you can, you know, it's extract, yeah. it's, 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 it's even worse because those kids are even wealthier and have even more in front of them. And I've experienced the same thing there. Like actually at, at a much earlier age, like a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the people in my, in our sort of friend group or age group, um, like you mentioned that sort of two to three year window, like a lot of those kids I went to Woodward with were dying of drug overdoses and things like that, you know, a decade ago. Like I, I, yeah. there's, there's people that like, and, and I think that that was almost like more accelerated, like a more, um, concentrated sort of psychological issue where they had so much more exposure and so much more laid out for them and that they just went really crazy in terms of, you know, drugs or, or whatever. And they just couldn't handle it. But I know, I know, I know another, like the number you just mentioned, that sort of like 20 ish number. I know another 10 at least from, that you don't from Woodward. That's that's insane. That's fucking insane. Like, and I don't want to make a political thing, but it's like, Whoa, that seems like if we're going to use the power of government to like engineer society, that seems like maybe an area where we should investigate is I hate to tie. I'm just going to do it. Fuck it. Whatever. It's my podcast. <laughs> like we're <laughs> fucking shutting down the world to save people's lives. And once again, everyone's life is valuable no matter what stage it is. But you know, the people that are dying of COVID are primarily people from what I understand, once again, my information is limited, so I apologize if I'm totally off base here. From like what I don't, inv- I don't do my research, I don't investigate, so I'm at fault for that. But from what I understand, it's old people and people with chronic health issues. You know, mm-hmm. this sounds incredibly callous, but like people that you know aren't going to be around for that for uh, like <laughs> decades and decades anyway. But like, yet we have generation. We come from the fucking suburbs. We come from like. Once again, generally speaking, all of us have our own individual struggles within this this population I'm about to to draw this like grouping I'm about to make. But generally speaking, the pop our peer group growing up is like the pinnacle of human existence, like a suburban high school and then into college in the United States of America. Like that is what the entire globe is striving towards. That is what an entire of, of that is the pinnacle of humanity our entire existence of human beings that's the best that we've made existence is like living in the suburbs and going to a nice suburban high school and then going off to college like that is life at its highest level and yet a crazy number of those people are dying way prematurely because of addictions to these like horrible substances and yet you know anyway i think i think it kind of of ties back you know to kind of bring it back to the conversation i think it just speaks to not having hardship like if you if you live your first 18 years of life you know without not having to want or worry about anything then you kind of feel a little invincible i would imagine you, you can you know do what it, you can try any kind of new designer drug you want you can you know drink yeah. more than, and then everybody else you can drive while you're doing all this stuff like you can do whatever like you're invincible yeah. and i think that that just yeah. gets built into your psyche 
Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's part of it. Like you have access to all of those experiences. Like there is no experience that's like off limit if you're raised um, like comfortably. And then also I think it's a thing of like the lack, going back to the lack of struggle. It's like for most people just getting to the point where they're not for most people, for people that do grow up in struggle, getting to college, getting a, a nice nine to five job after school, meeting a nice girl, those are all fucking wonderful things. And you appreciate those things. But if you're raised in an environment where, like, that is the minimum expectation, if you're raised in a, in a household where, like, you know, you, you grew up in a super nice house and your parents are driving luxury vehicles and, like, everything's always given to you your entire life, and then it's just get – it's the minimum expectation is that you go to college and graduate. Like, you're not experiencing a sense of achievement or getting a high – like from life accomplishments, those are all just kind of givens. And right. it's like, what do you get? What do you get if you're, if you're in that situation? And then yes, you do graduate college and then you do, you know, get a job. Well, all of a sudden now you're comparing it. Well, your dad was pulling in a million dollars a year. And now all of a sudden you're like fresh out of high or fresh out of college. And you're at some entry level position as an accountant making 50 K you're like, Holy fuck. There's a long way, but just to get from here to where my dad was. And, you know, yep. typically I think children, the expect you know, like in your head is like, Oh, I'll, I'm going to supersede my parents at you know, or at least meet them. But then you realize like, Holy shit, it's going to take a lot of work for me to get from, uh, you know, graduating college to being, you know, a lawyer in Buckhead, like your stepdad, like there's a lot of work there. And if you're not used to doing that work, that can probably be kind of overwhelming. And so I, once again, I'm speculating, but, you know, maybe then you turn to like, well, there's comfort in getting high on fucking Oxycontin, you know, and yep. you, you, you make a habit out of that. And next thing you know, you're fucking dead at 25 or 30 year. Yeah. Ugh, well, yeah, I think it's like if, you, if you're back, if your back's never against the wall, like exactly. you don't know what your limitations are. And I think that's now that we're having this conversation, I think that's what was so important about my own personal experience is like, I did have all those benefits that we keep talking about of, of, not having to want for anything and, and kind of having from a financial perspective, everything that I would ever need growing up. And so I could see myself if I, if I had a better head on my shoulders or if I, you know, if my parents stayed together or something where I didn't have these sort of like these impulse control issues and I never got into trouble, who the hell knows where I would have gone. I think I needed these, like I needed to get kicked out of school. I needed a DUI. I needed all these like tribulations to kind of, keep me on path and like keep my back right. against the wall. Cause I didn't have it coming from anywhere else. Like I was going to be okay. Well, I say, okay, but I was, I could have always moved home like kind of thing. And I, you know, that would have been right. super depressing. I would have hated it, but it was always not, it was always an option. I wasn't like right. you know, out on my own ever. And so, yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about it that way. Yeah, man. I did not expect this. The, these themes keep popping up in this conversation, but I'm glad they are. Um, <laughs> All right, so let's pick back. Where were we? Uh, DUI? Where were we? Yeah, DUI. Uh, yeah, so no, no, no. We basically at, we just college loans, loans and getting through school. Yeah, so ba- I mean, so basically, the the DUI was obviously a huge, a huge moment for me. I, it it was a it was a fork in the road moment where I could have taken the easier route and gone home, and gone back to Georgia State, been miserable, and who the hell knows where that story ends. Um, mm-hmm. thank- thankfully, I didn't. I, st- I was able to stay at Georgia. Um, you know, to, to deepen the friendships that I had already had from high school, and then some new folks, you know, came into fray like like Ben and and Ford, and um, you know, so so I so 
super happy to that, that that all worked out. And obviously, you know, the most important the most important byproduct of that is I met my my future wife in college. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, was a, it was a rough six months uh, after the DUI where I didn't have a license. And I was kind of a loner because it was over the summer and most folks were at home. And then, you know, as junior year cranks up, um, so I'm kind of at that point starting to figure out, all right, you know, the, the crazy, we're still drinking a lot. We're still partying. We're college kids. But, you know, the, the crazy level that we were doing it freshman and sophomore year is kind of taking a back seat. Um, but it was like, yeah, end of junior year when I was living with Jimmy at Rivermill below you and Matt. Um, yep. And it was like a, I want to say it was like a Thursday night or, or something, but it was, it was finals week of our junior year. And, you know, I, I didn't have a final the next day, but it was finals week. So a lot of people were kind of, you know, not really looking to go out, but this mutual, this, this friend of mine who I had, who I had actually gone to a formal with uh, for a sorority she was in, um, invited me over to her friend's place for a party and I, I told Jimmy about it and he was like, yeah, I'll go with you. Like, you know, cause I didn't want to go by myself cause I didn't know anybody. Um, and I, it, it came time to leave. And I, I remember looking at Jimmy and be like, eh, I don't know if I really want to go to this thing. Like this, this girl that I'd gone to form with, I had no interest in like, you know, physically we were pure, purely platonic. Uh, so that, so that wasn't a motivating factor. I didn't know anybody there. I wasn't looking to like hook up or anything, which is kind of odd for me to say now. Cause I'm, I feel like that's all I cared about at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, but Anyway, I was kind of like, I kind of didn't want to go. Like, and Jimmy was like, ah, I mean, in classic Jimmy style, like he, he was like, give me a reason, like why we shouldn't go. And I, I didn't have one. And he convinced me to go. And so, um, he and I showed up at this party and, um, it turned out, you know, Rochelle, my wife, it was her place with a couple other girls. And she was, she had a final the next day and she was studying. So she wasn't really even involved much that night. Like she was actually in and out of her room. Uh, with the door closed and but there were, you know, 20 or 30 people out in the main area drinking. And so I didn't really have much of an opportunity to see her or like interact with her at all. But I, and I didn't actually talk to her that night. Like I just saw her in passing and you know, she was wearing like a t-shirt and basketball shorts with like a ponytail. Right. She wasn't even like, she was very not done up, like about as, about as undone up as you can be as a 20 year old, 21 year old college student. Dude, that's um, my favorite. But, I mean, I don't mean to interject your story here, but that's my fucking favorite. I think chicks are the hottest at that moment, especially basketball shorts. Oh. I love basketball shorts. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. I no, do, 100%. I love it. I love basketball no, shorts. <laughs> no, man, I, I, I'm right there with you, man. I've always, I've always had this theory, or not theory, I guess. That sounds way too, you know, that sounds way too... Uh, pretentious, I've, but I've always had this. I've always had this thought that like it, the 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 gap of looks from a physical appearance of, of like again a physical attractiveness to a, to a woman is what she looks like in the morning when she wakes up in bed, and to what she looks like, you know, going out at night like it, like she's dressed up to the tens. If that if that gap is really really small, then that's what you want, and that's what I've always kind of thought that's of. I've always point. I've always looked for. I've always looked for simple beauty. I don't want a spectrum. You know, I don't want dolled up, super hot chick. And then, you know, kind of <laughs> needs like an hour to kind of wake up and like put her face on yeah. kind of girl, you know? Oof. So that's Oof. exactly what Rochelle is. She looks great all the time. And I, and I could tell, like I saw her totally with not a drop of makeup on, not not trying to impress anyone. She literally would just come out and like grab a beer and then go back into studies. So like, okay, this chick's cool as hell. Like she's just, she's studying, so but remember- she's drinking. You remember thinking that? So you remember being attracted to her that, that first night, even though she wasn't like uh, in uh, in the in bar, uh, scene or uh, part of the party or whatever? 
A hundred, a hundred percent. Yeah. There's, oh, there's wow. something, there's just something there. there. There's just something there that like, and, and obviously I think I'm, I'm probably blowing it up now, but I think at the time I was just like, okay, this girl, this girl doesn't give a fuck. Like she's just like, she's, she's in this crazy loud house party that she's, you know, she's not, she doesn't care. Like she has to study, but she's getting it done. Like she's going to go study and just kind of, you know, not be a, not be annoyed by it, but she's also going to partake right. a little bit by coming out and socializing, taking a break. But I was like, interesting. But anyway, the the point of all that is I never got a chance to talk to her. Like I never, you know, she wasn't socializing to that extent. It was really like, you know, tough to even see her for more than 90 seconds. Um, so anyway, we leave the party and um, head back to our place. I think I ended up texting my friend either that night or the next morning. And I just said, hey, who's that girl? Like who, I didn't even, I didn't even get her name. Like, I was like, who, who's that girl who lives that place who, you know, what, who was studying or whatever. And she said, Oh, that's what, that's our friend Rochelle. I can always remember. I think I wish I I wish I'd saved it. I mean, I don't know how you save texts from 2009. <laughs> I wish I'd saved it. I, I wish I'd saved the exchange because I said Rochelle question mark. <laughs> I said Rochelle question mark. What is she a stripper? <laughs> that was my immediate response to my future wife of finding out her name. Um, what a whore! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like the exact opposite of Rochelle's personality. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, at the time, it was just a very unique name. Um, right, right. Especially, you know, I, I just never seen that before. And I just kind of, I was making a joke, unfortunately. Um, but no, my friend, my friend gets back and he's like, no, she's really, well, obviously she said no, but she's like, she, I think she goes like, ha ha. No, she's really cool. She's like, yeah, she loves beer and she's super chill and loves music. I was like, perfect. Let's go. Um, so and so anyway, yeah. We, yeah, so no, the, the courting process began at that point. Um, okay. I think she was. I think, I think my friend was actually still over there the next day, and so she or she had gone back to help clean up or something, and so she was with Rochelle at the time. And so I'm texting her, and and I'm like, "Well, is she single? Like, can I get her number?" And so like my friend is corresponding all this in real time. Like, "Hey, can I give this guy right. your number?" Um, she goes, "Yeah, sure, no, yeah, why not?" And so I so I get her number, and this is the end of junior year. Uh, and she's, she's getting ready to go back home. Cause she was, she didn't stay over the summers and Athens like I did. Um, and so it took, I want to say it took two months of texting, which, and, and she's the freaking worst at texting. So I think I sent her that initial text. Really? Um, in like, no, she's, well, she's not as bad as you, but, um, <laughs> I, I texted her, I texted her like early May, you know, right after finals. I didn't hear from her for like three weeks and I was just like, geez, oh, this girl's shit. cold. Like, I like, she, yeah, she's like playing the, She's playing the long game or something. So I think we we finally got on the phone for a few minutes, but it was like super start and stop and or stop and start or whatever. Like very right. never really caught a never caught a rhythm. We weren't like the kind we weren't the couple to like, you know, text back and forth every hour and then finally meet. It was like one or two phone calls over the course of like two months. And right. when we finally had like our first date that summer. Um and then yeah, we kind of just picked it up from there. Um so yeah. Where was y'all's first date? <laughs> Our first day was at Ted's Montana Grill in Snellville, Georgia. Damn, dude! I see, dude. Having okay, so you, I guess you didn't stay in the dating game like, uh, like for obviously nearly as long as I have, right? I've still been in the game forever. I still am, technically. <laughs> um, a veteran, dude. You, I would never, ever, on a first date now as a thirty-two-year-old man, take a girl out to like a restaurant. Not to mention, I mean, Ted Montana <laughs> Grill is like a nice restaurant. I guess. But I did that shit too, dude. In college, I had a couple times in college where I took a girl like out. And then even like, 
I can think back to girls I like asked out in my early twenties after college. And I would always take them out to dinner. Like, yep. that's what you do, dude. I would yep. never do that now. Like that, I, that's like, to me, like a cardinal sin. Like you take, man, is it, just, is it too much? Is it too much forced? Is it too much forced interaction? It's, it's no, it's, it's, I mean, it's actually that, that was always my thinking like, Oh, this is perfect. We're, we, we have to be in front of each other literally face to face mm-hmm. for at least an hour. So it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Like you'd think that's perfect. But for me, it's just like there, there's eating, like there's just too much associated. I think psychologically with eating, especially with girls, I don't think they ever feel comfortable, like actually ordering something. Uh, right. It, it just from like a, like you're not, not going to order a hamburger dog. They're always going to order like a Caesar salad. And then, a, you know, I, there's the, there's the whole food concept first off. Then there's the, there's, there's not a hard, there's not an easy out if you go and sit down at the restaurant. Like, what if it's fucking horrendous date? Like, you have to yep. be there the whole time. You have to be, you have to wait for the, you have to go through the whole restaurant process. You have to wait for the, you have to wait for the waiter, bring you your water, and then bring you a drink. Dude, by the time the waiter has come back to ask you for your food, you could potentially know this is a fucking disaster. And, 100%, yeah. So, like, but now you haven't ordered your food yet. You have to stay there for the food, you know? <laughs> uh, and then it's, it's more expensive. And then, like, what are you going to, to me, at least, like, and even still this is the case, if I'm taking a girl out on a first date, to me, the goal is to fuck, period. And so it's like, to me, eating does not, is not a natural lead in to fucking. And so, <laughs> like, you don't go. Unless you're eating oysters. Like, I guess. But it's like, typically, <laughs> like, you don't go, like, fill your stuff up, fill your stomach up and be like, okay, like, let's go back to your place and get naked. Like, that's not a natural, <laughs> not a natural transition. Uh, so yeah. like, going out to dinner is just never, to me, is never the first the good first date idea. But I did the same thing when I was young and like didn't know anybody. I would always like, Oh, let's go out to dinner. Cause I can remember even after college, my first couple of years out of college, like meeting a girl, getting her number. And then dude, I would like, say we're going to go out on like uh Saturday or something. Like I would spend like hours on Friday afternoon, like driving around town, like looking for the perfect restaurant. <laughs> the, <fuck? laughs> the best crazy. The be- dude you just go to for drinks or if the chick doesn't drink and you go for coffee like it's very simple like it, yep. both of those both coffee and alcohol promote conversation like you yep. can be in and out if it's a disaster you can be in and out in 15 minutes like one drink one you know one coffee um yep. and then if it's going on the other hand if it's going really well then it's like okay let's go do another activity let's just go take a walk around town or okay now let's go grab something to eat or um you know ideally let's go back to your place or my place i don't know anyway, I'm totally <laughs> fucking rambling here. you're such a you're such an animal man you're, you're insatiable oh, i am don't fucking yeah i'm a fucking animal and i think most people are fucking animals and they're masking it so I i'm proud to be yeah probably um, probably I mean, uh, I'm, I'm like getting back involved in, in a relationship right now. I can feel it, but like, dude, even as recently as like a couple months ago, um, I did this, like went through this whole process again. It was the first time, like since COVID, right. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go on some dates or anyway, I did this like in like October, I did this again. And once again, just went through the whole thing. Like, Hey, we're meeting, like, just be very forward. Hey, we're meeting at this bar (laughs) or like we're meeting at this cafe to grab a coffee. Uh, and right. thank God I did, dude, because everyone I went out with like three girls during the fall. Oh my God, and what a fucking disaster of, of human beings! All of them. I shouldn't say that, 
Like <laughs> they weren't like they weren't monsters or anything, and they weren't like bad people. But it's like yeah, it's so obvious, like right off the bat, that like within five yeah. minutes, I know this is not going anywhere. Like yeah, and so I'm like I'm so glad I'm not like you know waiting for you know my food to be brought out and having you know anyway. Sorry, that's totally different. <laughs> yeah, you just can't, you just can't commit. You can't commit at this age. I mean, when you're 21, it's like you know I don't know. But you don't know anybody. You're also like, this is what you do. Like, this is what you see in movies. Like, you have right. a girl out and you bring her to a nice dinner. And on the, on, the, on the other hand, dude, it's also like very sweet and pure and nice and innocent. Like, here I am. I'm such an animal. Like, listen, kids, like the only thing you should be focusing on <laughs> is getting your dick wet within two and a half hours of meeting, of like making contact. Within first contact. Exactly. <laughs> so, Moving for the kill. Yeah. <laughs> Yes means or no means yes. Um, but no, I don't know. It's, and there is something very sweet about it as well. Like, you know, treating a girl, you know, if you like a girl, you think you like. And also the other thing is you guys had like a long courtship. So you also probably had a good idea. Yes. It wasn't like some yeah. you met out at 2 a.m. Like, hey, we should go out sometime. Uh, yes. And you take, take her to a five-star restaurant. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Ted's Montana Grill, first date. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a great experience. Um, but yeah, to your, to your point, <laughs> great dinner. She, yeah, just awesome. It was actually a lunch. It was like it was like a, a late, like a one o'clock lunch. So it was very gotcha. casual, very non-committal. I mean, we were back in our. I was back in my dad's house in Snellville. She was back. Her parents had moved to Buford at this time, which is about half an hour north of Snellville. But it was a good meeting. It was a good meeting spot. Like, um, very casual. You know, just kind of reaffirmed what we had talked about on the phone and texted about and just seeing each other in the flesh for the first time, I guess, was making sure we didn't smell or, or whatever was important. Um, I mean, it's the first time yeah, that was, this girl since like, you just had like flash images of her, like coming right. in and out of her bedroom four months earlier or whatever. Right, right, right. So anyway, yeah, that was, that was it. I mean, then we, we you know, we, we date, we, I would come back into Atlanta, you know, once or twice over that summer, um, hang out with her friends, which is kind of ironic. Her, two of her best friends were actually, in the same building as Lenny and I at Georgia state. So we actually knew, oh, I actually shit. knew them before I knew her. Um, oh, whoa. And yeah. So that was, so that was kind of interesting, I guess. Cause you know, thank God I never hooked up with those girls. That would have been kind of awkward. Um, right. but anyway, like I knew those girls and, and so they could vouch for me, I guess that I wasn't a creep or I wasn't, you know, um, ill ill intended, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we, we kind of just kept it casual over the summer uh, you know, feelings started getting stronger definitely towards the end of the summer. And what's kind of funny is that she had already signed up for this study abroad program before we met. So she was getting ready to take off for Italy for the entire semester um, of our oh, se- first yeah, semester of our right. senior year. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we, we date for like two to three months. And at that age, like, you're just like, you're passionate as hell. Like, you I don't, love I don't quick, think I look... Yeah. Yeah, it was hard. It was like hard and fast. Like it was very, very quick. Um, and so that was tough. Like we, we we're finally getting to this point where we're, we're going to be able to spend like every day together. We're going to go back to college together. And it's like, oh, actually, I'm going to Italy for you know for the next three months. And so that was incredibly difficult. Um, Kudos to her though I did for it. like going through with it because that's one of those things. Like, oh yeah, back, if she hadn't gone to Italy when you're t- 21 or whatever, you'd regret that for the rest of your life. Oh, hundred percent. And the good news is that you know, my sister at the time was a flight attendant. So I got a pretty good deal on a ticket. And so I was actually able to go over there and hang out with her for a week. Um, and so we have that experience forever. We went to Hungary. Uh, we went to 
obviously Rome and, and she was staying in Montepulciano, which is like Tuscany way out in the kind of boonies of Italy, uh, wine country. So it was, it was awesome. I mean, that was a cool little like experiment, like something I was 21 at the time and never traveled outside of like the Southeast or the East coast. and was kind of navigating this like rural Italian countryside by myself, like not speaking a lick of Italian. It was kind of, it was like a, another one of those like grow up moments. Like I, I was very yeah, sheltered dude. and, you know, you kind of get thrust in. I mean, you can obviously, you know, you're the, you're the king of kind of just traveling by the seat of your pants and you know, kind yeah. of doing whatever, but I had never done that before. And that was like super daunting, but that was, that mm-hmm. was just kind of showed, kind of just proved like how much I really love this girl and how, how much I was willing to kind of, you know, step outside of my comfort zone for her. So that was a good, that was definitely a good experience for sure. Yeah. I mean, I know that game. I did the same thing when I was 21 actually, because I remember I went to ULM that last semester junior year and then I met a girl there and then I yep. the same thing. I was head over heels for this girl by the end of the semester. And I knew the only way that like we could keep this thing going. So I wasn't going to stay at ULM was we were in the same Spanish class and the Spanish class was doing like a study abroad trip just over the summer to Costa Rica. And like literally like my primary motivation for doing it was like, dude, if, this, if I can convince this girl to go to Costa Rica, then like maybe I can close the deal or whatever. <laughs> but this is the same thing. Like you, you, you fall fast and you're willing to make the relatively irrational, irrational decision. Yeah, man. So we got, we got, uh, we dated for a few years and got married. Uh, you know, what I found out to be relatively early when I moved out to California, but got married at 25 and, <laughs> Uh, yeah. So we've been married for seven years now. Wait, so you got married, you got married in 2013. Fall of 2013. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, September. And what was the impetus for, cause I remember like being very proud of y'all for moving to San Francisco, you know, cause most people were staying home and, you know, I'm a proponent of he, pushing the limits what was the impetus for going right. to san francisco I, I got a job um i had been i got fired i got fired so yes yeah, so we get married in september i get fired from my job in october um not great timing where were you working um i was working at uh this tech startup that i had been i was in sales outside sales in atlanta for a tech startup for about a year um and just yeah, I just, I wasn't performing anymore. Again, lack of sales is the absolute, I found out, I found out the hard way that sales is the absolute worst, uh, profession yeah, for someone who has no motivation. Yeah. And not only, not only no motivation, but I had zero like drive to have a lot of money. Like you, either, you, you need to have like one of those things, or if you have both then you're going to be an awesome salesman, I had neither. Like I needed, I needed someone to crack the whip and, and if they tried to incentivize me with like a bonus structure or like more money, I was like, eh, I don't really care. <laughs> so it was yeah. a really, really bad combination. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, so I got fired in October. Awesome. Uh, married, just moved in together and I don't have a job. And at the time she was not super happy with her work. She was kind of a sales rep as well for in the medical field. Um, and again, another, just total mismatch in, in professions. Like she did not, she was a marketing and econ uh, or marketing majors with a minor in econ. And so she did not want to go into sales at all, but she was in a really good field because it's medical. And, you know, when you get into healthcare and medical, you can kind of stay in that forever, which she still is into to this day, but in a more marketing component. But anyway, she wasn't super happy. We had just gotten married. I had been fired. And 
the, the, the sales that I was doing was in small business, like restaurants and kind of like, you know, bars and stuff. And, and I was running across square a lot. Um, and so I ended up when I got let go, I ended up looking at their careers page and they were starting a sales team lo and behold out in San Francisco at the end of 2013. And so I applied and I got the job and, you know, they wanted me to move out to San Francisco and I thought, shit, let's do it. And how was that? How y'all are there for how long? Two years. Uh, we, we got out there at the start of 14 and we left, you know, just before Christmas in 15. So just a little under two years. Dude, what? <laughs> you in San Francisco. I can see part of it like, <laughs> this is awesome. And I can see part of it where, like, you're probably like, where the fuck am I? What was your time in San Francisco? How do you reflect on your time in San Francisco? Uh, it was amazing at that point in time in my life. I, I had grown up very... Well, it's, it's funny, actually, because now I think about it, you know, obviously the, the past four years in politics have really kind of sh- shown a light on, you know, your parents and in-laws and, and people's beliefs. But, you know, I, I grew up with fairly liberal parents. I mean, you know, my stepdad's from Mississippi and my dad's from Florida. My mom's from Florida. My stepmom's from Tennessee. And you think, oh, man, I must have been growing up in a super religious household and super conservative. And it's not not the case at all. Like, I, I don't, you know, none of my parents other than my stepmom were religious by any any means. Um, and all voted democratic. Like, you know, my mom was a big Bill Clinton guy and my stepdad was you know, fiscally conservative, but definitely not socially. And so I had a pretty, I, you know, looking back, I feel like I had a pretty diverse upbringing, but then at the same time, when I was 22, I, and I was graduating college, I never lived outside the state. Um, still kind of had very, prejudiced views on certain things in terms of lifestyles, in terms of race, in terms of culture, for whatever reason, it's just being in the South. I mean, even, even though I have liberal parents, it's like you're still just surrounded by it. So you're kind of, it's hard to break those, those chains, if you will, or like kind of snap out of that. Um, so yeah, being thrust into San Francisco at 25, when I have this very closed minded upbringing of, and that's across the board. Like I didn't, I didn't really do drugs. I ride. No, not really. I never did drugs. Um, I drank a lot, but that was, you know, just a college thing and was just very close minded. Like I didn't, I didn't really have a lot of worldly experiences in my life. So going out there at that age was a big eye opener for me from just about every cultural and societal perspective. I mean, San Francisco is the epicenter of of a lot in terms of, you know, it's, it's, it's about, yeah. about as opposite as you can get from Athens, Georgia and from Atlanta. Even. How many months did it take um, before you suck your first dick? <laughs> uh, what is quarter one? No, it was definitely, it was definitely first, first week, first week. I, I wouldn't even put it in months. <laughs> it's funny though. We did, we did move to the Castro. We, we moved right into the, into the Castro. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, when I would get, when I would, when I would take the bus down into to my office, you know, the stop was, in, was one of the stops I had to get off at and transfer buses was right at the heart of Castro, the intersection of Castro street and market, which is just like the, you know, the gay epicenter of the world almost. And, you know, you just see guys walking around with their dicks out and it was, that was just a thing. Yeah. Like you can, you can, you can walk around nude and yeah. I was like, Interesting. And then, there's, and then there's like a, there's a bake shop there that just sells dick shaped cookies. And you know, there's, there's, and there's, there's flyers for like drag shows that are coming up. And it's just, it's just, 
it, it was like trial by fire, but like what to, was the, your, to the like, max. Right. What was your like instinctive reaction? Like your gut reaction was your gut reaction like hedonism, or was your gut reaction like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> like I'm in a totally different world. Or something. To be honest, I, yeah, I think it was I think it was somewhere in the middle. Like I think the gut the gut reaction was. You know, I wasn't surprised, right? Like, I'm, I wasn't close. I wasn't that close-minded. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go to this city called San Francisco. I wonder what that's like. like I had a, <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, like I had a connotation. <laughs> oh, City by the Bay. I love that old Otis Redding song. Really paints a beautiful picture. Um, like, I wasn't, I, I wasn't that ignorant or naive. Right. right. Um, so, so I definitely had an expectation, but I mean, the expectation. I mean, you can go in expecting a certain thing, and you get a totally you know, cranked up to 11 experience. And so that was kind of my initial thing is I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to be open-minded. I'm not going to be a judgmental Southerner. Um, I don't want to be like an outsider. That was another big thing that I, that ultimately brought us back to Atlanta is that by the end, I really still never felt like part of the city. Cause I felt like working in the tech industry, you know, you're always kind of the, you're kind of the others that are there because you're not from there and you're kind of raising rents and all that right. kind of shit. I mean, you know, that's a different, that's right. a different conversation. But, but then on, um, and on top of that, you're not like, and maybe I'm speaking out of turn here, but like, you're also not like a tech guy. No, not at all. And like, you're not like a coder. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, but I, but I was in the industry and so I, 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 yeah, but I was in the industry and I knew that I was, I was, pay, I was raising, you know, cost of living for everyone who was there. And, and so, but anyway, I, I, I really, I really wanted to, to blend in. I didn't I did not want to be, and this is at work too, because I'm working with a bunch of folks who are Ivy you League or so anyway, I got fired my first day. Uh, that was a short shit. <laughs> um, but but no man, like I, I walk in, I'm 25. I show up to I show up to San Francisco rocking my, you know, my button down shirt and my light jeans and my tennis shoes. And I, I, I'm coming right off of like UGA's campus. Like I look, I got my right. frat haircut. I mean, right. I could not stand out anymore. And so like, that was, that was that quick realization. Like I don't want to stand out. I don't, I just want to blend in. I don't want to be a the Southern guy who, you know, is out is over his skis out here in the big city or out here in, on the West coast. And so I right. very quickly adapted my kind of, personal perspective on things very quickly. Cause I was, and I was, cause I was the married, not only that I was a married 25 year old starting right. with all these other 25 year olds who are like, Oh my God, you're already married. Like these people are still like going out and hooking up every night. Like they don't even have a girlfriend. Like they're just, right. they're, we're living two totally different lifestyles. Um, and I was, I was even one of the youngest, one of our friends to get married. I mean, we, we knew people who got married at 22, 23, 24. Yeah. And so I kind of oh. thought, Oh, I'm a little bit of a late bloomer. And I get out there and it's like, my boss is 32 and he just got married. And we're like, Oh, marriage buddies. And I'm like seven years younger than this guy. So it was just, right. it was, it was very interesting. Like my perspective totally shifted overnight from like what, and that's, that's not, as it should be. Right. Like I, I spent my whole time in the Southeast and in one city and one state. And then I, and you get thrown into something else. It's like, okay, yeah, my perspective is a little, is a little different now. So that was kind of cool. That was the best, that was the best outcome by, by far it was kind of just being shown a different way of living and, and I eventually became really comfortable with all the, the crazy, you know, San Francisco stereotypes of like, you know, homeless people talking to rocks and like tripping on acid and, <laughs> you know, and people taking shits in the street. Like I, I saw more human feces out there than I've ever seen in my life. Like it's, it's a nuts. It was, it was nuts, but it was, it was awesome. Yeah. I got, I got that experience. I don't miss it. Like, I'm glad that we had the experience. I'm glad we were there, but I don't miss it at all. Like when I would go back for work, 
um, I was like, this is fun, and I'll, I, I'll check out the normal haunts, but I'm glad I don't live here anymore, for sure. Right. And then y'all moved back 2006, so you're 28, about to be 29? Yes. Yeah. 28. Uh, 28. Yeah. We moved back end of, um, or we have right before my 20th birthday, we moved back at the end of 15. So we, we officially were back here in six, the beginning of 16. And the um, primary motivation for moving back was a professional or like you said, the feeling of like, uh, longing for home. The, I think to be honest, to be honest with you, from my perspective, it was the longing for home. Like I'm, I'm a homebody. I love, you know, I think you know this, but I'm, I'm like the most annoying Atlanta just city of Atlanta oh, fan that there is. Yeah. I just love yeah. Atlanta. Like I but love, you bought, you bought low on that concept and I think it's paying dividends. Like Atlanta's on the up and up. <laughs> I just, yeah, I've always, I've always kind of carried it as like a badge of honor and it, it, it stems, it stems from the sports teams for sure, which is, is a, a really poetic way of trying to make sports seem bigger than they are. But right. you know, our sports, our sports teams here suck. They've always sucked. We had one fluky season in 95 where the Braves won a world series and you know, that that Coming off was amazing for me. Right? Yeah, it was like a, it was like a ninety game regular season, and you know we yeah. we could have won four World Series, but we only won one. And so and so and so Atlanta had this national rap from a sports perspective of just like a shitty sports town. And it's a transient city. You know the teams aren't very good. Nobody cares about the teams. So I kind of and that was the opposite for me because like we started this whole thing off talking about sports. Like sports is my before before my wife and before you know my job and everything. Sports was my identity. Like that's all I knew. And so yeah. to have my, to have my identity tied to something that's so nationally chastised or kind of looked down on, I, that just bled, that very easily bled into the city. Like you would find those areas of, of living here that, you know, other folks don't appreciate or are better than you realize. And I kind of just latched onto that really early on. Right. So it was hard right. to, that, that's what made it hard to leave initially is I just loved it here so much, but I was always going to come back. So did you know graduating college that like you wanted to move and live in Atlanta and like be an adult in Atlanta, be married in Atlanta? Yeah, we, like, yeah, we kind of glossed favorite? over that, I guess. Yeah, we, we kind of glossed over it. I, mean, I was a journalism student um, in yeah, college and the dream ask, was... That was my next question. Yeah, so let's, yeah, let's, the, let's, the let's dream... combine those two questions. Like what were not just your geographical dreams, but like your professional dreams in college, graduating college? Talk us through that. Yeah, um... So my parents and grandparents were all newspaper people uh, for the most part. My dad didn't stick with oh, newspapers, really? but I didn't know that. yeah, my, my, gr- my granddad and my, and my grandmother worked at, in Jacksonville for the newspaper down there for their entire careers. Um, so I grew up, you know, going to visit them and they'd have their press clippings up on the walls and they were, oh, shit. they were, ver- they were, de- and they were Democrats as well. Like very, you know, very liberal. Um, and so I grew up with that in my mind and, and writing always, and my dad started down that path, but quickly got out of it just cause it wasn't financially viable and he wanted to do more and all that kind of stuff. But like, it's in the DNA like I, and writing was very much, um, a passion of mine. It's something I, it came very natural to me. I mean, I was, I was charging kids in high school, you know, 50 bucks for me to write their papers for them. And I was doing that like as a side hustle, like, um, I just, I, yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Um, I mean, it wasn't like a, I didn't think I, I only did it a handful of times. There was only a certain amount of kids who could afford that. I've always been um, like an educational criminal. I know. <laughs> it was so funny though. I, the one kid I did it for was so stupid. This, this one kid I did it for was so stupid. I, I didn't, I didn't hold back at all. I just wrote my normal 
you know, essay style that it was so blatantly obvious that right. he, hadn't, he hadn't written it, that he got in big trouble. Right. But I, you know, I said, Hey man, sorry, man, no refunds. Like I said, I did the work. Um, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but anyway, that kind of, that kind of ties into, that kind of ties into, you know, that, that side of the intelligence spectrum that we were talking about with Lenny and yeah. myself that I think we share is that I intentionally chose journalism, not for some, not for some holier than thou, like spotlight moment where I was going to be this reporter and save the world. I just knew I was good at writing and I knew that I could do it without a lot of effort. And I was going to get through school yeah. in time on time. That's all it was. Right. That, that's strictly yeah. all that it was. I could cover sports, wow. for the, which I did. I, co- I covered, you know, softball and basketball and baseball for the red and black, the school newspaper. And I got paid for that, which is nice. Um, but that was, you I knew I could do really that. I got paid for that. Yeah, it was like ten. It was like ten bucks an article or something, and so yeah, but still, that was nice. Cool. You, your professional yeah, it was, beer, it, was beer, it was it was it was beer money. It was news clippings, and it was easy. Like it was very 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 easy for me to do. Like the, the way I imagine, like Ford, our buddy, who is probably the most intelligent person that I know today. Maybe not ever, but he he's just incredibly intelligent from like a your standard, you know, stereotypical yeah. view of intelligence. Like I imagine how math comes to him or how finance comes to him is how writing comes to me. It's just, it's just yeah. easy. It's like, it, and so I knew that I was like, I'm going to do this because I'm not a good student. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to have that burning passion to have a four Oh. So I need to do something that's going to like remove all the barriers to entry, if you will, to get that degree. And that's what ended up happening. Right. So the dream though, was to be a sports writer. I mean, I, I love sports. It's all I knew. I could write really well or really easily. And I was doing it in college. I was covering sports in college. And so it just seemed like the natural progression was to go to Atlanta, a big media market, um, and just cover sports. I, I, didn't, I didn't know how it was going to happen, but I, that was the goal. And so um, I started right out of college. I got an internship at the Augusta Chronicle uh, in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, general internship, just like covering local news, um, essentially. And thankfully, uh <laughs> well, I was there for, I was there on a three month term It was a three month internship and a month and a half in a sports spot came open that they offered me, um, on like the high school beat for Augusta. And I think the pay was, pay was going to be like $22,000 a year. Um, you know, benefits, all that kind of stuff. And I'm 22 years old, right out of school. And my parents are like, you're taking that job. Right. And this is like, I'm, I'm still like a year into dating Rochelle, my now wife. Um, she's back in Atlanta. I hate Augusta. I don't know if any, anybody who's going to listen to this is from there. I, I apologize, but it's a terrible place to be, especially in the summer. Um, cause it's 170. Bro, degrees. You love the masters. But, yeah. Well, the masters is one week out of 52 and I was not there. I was not there for that. Um, but anyway, so, so I, I, I turned down that job, turned down, a, a whopping 22 K uh, right out of school in journalism, which I guess, you know, 22 K in journalism in 2010 is like a fucking million dollars. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, so I yeah, out... I mean that... yeah, that's not a bad offer right out of college. <laughs> I know, but it was, but it was living in Augusta and it was covering, yeah. you know, high school sports in Augusta. And I was like, maybe this isn't the dream. So I said, I turned it down. They were kind of pissed off about it. And, and by the way, just a quick aside, that was the only time that my DUI had ever come up professionally. Um, cause it was still, it was still new and it was like my first job offer. And I remember going into the editor's office and they were going to give me this, this written offer. And they're like, Hey, we, we had something come up on your background report or your background check. 
Um, and I had to like talk my way out of it. They or like, I had to like explain myself and that kind of thing. Right. And that was a little awkward, but I've never dealt with, I, I've never dealt with like, it. Right, cool. Job still yours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I wasn't, no, you know, I wasn't trying to listen, I've been arrested three times and it's never come up once. Right. Right. I mean, it's just something we build up in our head. Like you, we, we think when we're that age, yeah. like this is the end of the world. It's the worst thing. And your perspective, you listen, know, obviously kids shit, out there, break all the fucking laws you want. <laughs> especially if you're a, especially if you're a straight white male do whatever you want <laughs> we have a slightly slightly longer leash I always, talk shit to, I always talk shit to the cops too and I've never been killed so I don't know this book that I'm <laughs> but it is I mean it, 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 it is man like it is it is a point of privilege like every time I have been arrested I'm talking pretty mad shit and I've never you know there's never been any physical consequences so that's that's a whole different story Anyway, somebody, somebody yeah, says I, that. I, well, I, I think if you have a demonstrated track record of, like, you know, being a competent human being, right, you have a college degree, um, they, at, at that point, it's like, it's a red flag, I guess, an arrest. But yeah. if they know you, if they've had a chance to know you person to person, it's not like, uh, it's not a fucking nuclear bomb. Right, right. So anyway, I, after going through all that, I turned them down. So they weren't they weren't too happy. Um, I think I think the editor even said something to the effect of like I stuck my neck out for you, like with the the DUI thing or whatever. But you're going to turn us oh, down really? anyway. Yeah, I was like, okay, cool, man. Um, so anyway, I moved back to Atlanta with no job prospects. I was blogging at the time for a alternative weekly newspaper here in Atlanta because they uh, yeah, called creative loafing. With, loafing. Yeah, yeah. I started my own yeah, sports blog with them. Um, and that was pretty much it. Like I was getting paid like 15 bucks an article or something like that for, for creative loafing with zero health insurance, like zero anything. And I, I moved back home for like two months as I looked for the next gig. And thankfully, you know, our buddy Lenny, our buddy Lenny's older brother, Greg, who I'm sure some of these people are listening to this will actually have seen on CNN lately. Like he's killing it. Um, Dude, yeah, this fucking yeah, election season has been money for Greg Bluestein. This guy's like a fucking celebrity oh my at this point. God. Yeah, I, was, I, te- I texted Lenny the other night jokingly, like, hey, can you FaceTime Greg? This was on Tuesday night on the night of the, the Senate runoff here in Georgia. And I'm like, hey, man, can you FaceTime Greg for me real quick? <laughs> He's like, why? I'm like, I'm just joking. This is like a Super Bowl. Um, Dude, I've, anyway, had yeah, multiple, so he, I've had multiple random, had multiple random people text me. Like, hey, is that is this guy Greg Bluestein, Lenny's brother? Like, yeah. <laughs> the people that I haven't talked to in years have texted yeah. me. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, they look the exact fucking same. Yeah, um, I love them. Anyway, so yeah, so he, so he was always my like, uh, I, I don't want to say like mentor or anything. Like, I, I never talked to Greg about it, but I, I always, I always knew that he was a, a big deal in like UGA yeah. journalism. Like he, Oh yeah. He was the editor. He was the editor of the college paper. He, um, you know, he was at the associated press at the time. Like he was definitely someone I looked up to in the, in the field. And so I, he was able to give me a job at the associated press, a uh, seasonal job covering college football and college basketball, uh, that I was able to get pretty early from moving back from Augusta. So I did that for a full season, um, right out of, right out of, uh, my first like real job, I guess, working in the Atlanta headquarters of the Associated Press covering sports. So that was like kind of dream realized, I think, to a certain extent. Like, yeah, I mean, that was, that was the I vision. And I realized that really early on, which is not a lot of people get to do, but I need the to downside is I realized. I had no idea. Really? 
No, I knew the creative yeah. loafing thing. I didn't even realize about the the Augusta internship. I just knew the creative loafing thing. Yeah, yeah. So I did the. I was I was the associate press for about a year. Um, but I realized really quickly, like this, this is not what I want to do. I mean, I, I was working alongside industry veterans in their forties, working the exact same job as me, and I was like, huh. So like, is this the ceiling? Like, is, it, is this like the pinnacle of my like professional career? Because I've already reached it at 22 years old. But that's not good. And so mm-hmm. that was that kind of aha moment where it's like maybe showing up to an office at 1 p.m. on a Saturday and not leaving until midnight because you're covering West Coast college football games. Like, maybe that's not what you want to do. Like, so anyway, that was that was the the one year of actually using my degree. And ever since then, it's been kind of downhill as far as journalism is concerned. How do you reflect on that? Like looking back, do you have any regrets or wish you'd handle it differently? Just from my point of view, I entered college the exact same way you did. The area of academics that I'd always excelled in was writing. And the only thing I knew about existence was sports. And so my freshman year, I thought the same thing. I was like, I'm going to be a sports journalist. And then as I started taking more, it was a little different transition. As I started taking like more and more college classes, I just started getting genuinely interested in other topics. And then eventually I was just like, yeah, I don't, you know, it was my way I viewed my college education was different than you. I I was, I wanted to like, just like diversify my experience. If I'm here, I just want to learn different shit. Um, Mm -hmm. But looking back on it now, dude, and and I also got caught up in this notion and, and it's not a false notion. My view of it has changed, but especially once I started taking like international affairs classes, uh, I started realizing like, holy shit, the world is a fucked up place. And like the majority of humans have lives are a lot more difficult than mine has been, Um, you know, at least on paper. Uh, And so that's when I kind of got, or it is when I got like uh, really interested in in working in like low income communities. But another Mm -hmm. looking back, reflecting back on that now, and who knows where my professional efforts will go in the future. But where I stand right now, like kind of at this transition period is like, part of me is like, damn, I kind of wish I had just like, maybe I should have listened instead of getting caught up in all of the noise of college. Maybe I should just listen to like that child, that childish voice in my head. That's like, no, sports are fun. You like sports. Sports are like what you're passionate about and what brings you happiness. Like maybe I should have uh, pursued a career like covering what I enjoyed. Um, even even to this day, I think like, oh man, maybe I should have been a sports journalist. Uh, so how do you look back on it? So I think since I I got a little deeper into the the game, obviously than you did. I I obviously, have yeah, yeah. I have I have you know past coworkers who stayed the path, and so I still have kind of like you know uh, these these uh, barometers to judge myself on. Like it's like because I I can look at so-and-so who I worked with at Red and Black or so-and-so who I worked with the Associated Press or so-and-so who, you know, is my contemporary and and see where they're at and kind of draw the line. Like, okay, would I be comfortable, you know, as the the UGA sports.com beat guy at 32 living in Athens? And I think the answer is no. Like I, I, so I've, I've been able to now with that, without that vision and without that, you know, visibility into what could have been, I'm, I might have more, um, of a wanting, but no, I, I, I have very clear, I have a very clear understanding that, you know, that just was not something that that's not where I want to be. Like I, I, I love sports still. Like it hasn't changed. Um, but once it became my job and once it was like my only 
that was it. That was it. Like my hobby blended into my career and I had no, there was no distinction. It was like, this isn't what I want. Like I just want to be able to go to right. a game, like drink a beer and, and be a fan. I don't want to have to sit in a press box with a bunch of overweight diabetic men in their middle, in their middle forties, like mouth breathing and just like that. That was, that was cool. Cause I, I got to do that too with the creative loafing piece. I was going to Braves games and Falcons practices and going in the locker room and like, you know, I was in the locker room with like Jason Hayward and like when he was a rookie and all this kind of like I was doing a ton of really cool stuff right out of the gate. Oh shit! Um, yeah, but but it just it, it, I I couldn't be a fan in there. Like I wasn't going and like getting an autograph. I was having to like ask him a question or having to like you know it, it was it was just different. Like my fandom just overtook the I, I never was not a fan. And then when you're a true journalist, right. even if it's in sports, you have you have to be objective and you have to like do it the right way. And I, I realized I was never gonna be able to walk that line. And so the people like, okay, so now a decade on, we're 32, 33, we have a decade worth of, it's been a decade since we graduated college. Like the, yep. uh, your, you, you haven't seen any of your peers, journalism peers, like rise to a position where that like you're envious of? Um, no, I mean, I, I think I've, you know, I, it's, it's all perspective. I think, I, I think that, not, the, not not anything that I'm envious, envious, envious of, but I also don't want to like belittle what they're doing because I think that right, they, right, right. I'm really yeah. happy. I'm happy for where they're at because I think that's a lot of those people have done the absolute best they possibly could. And they've, but they're not on. You're not going to be on. Not everybody's going to be on ESPN. Not everybody's going to be. You know, not, not that Stephen A. Not that Stephen A. Smith is like you know who you should envy, but like he's making what eight million dollars a year to talk about sports. Like right. you, there aren't those jobs those jobs aren't, aren't growing on trees. Like right. you're going to not, you're not going to struggle, but you're not going to make a, a, a decent amount of money unless, you know, you get really lucky and you're having to work, you're having to work your ass off. You're going to work weird hours and you're having to like, you know, it's, just, it's not an easy job. It's really, really not. And so I, I, yeah. I I'm happy for all the success. My foot, like, I guess I do have one, one, I would say my most successful contemporary, does do pregame stuff for Fox sports on television for the Braves. And he's, he and I would cover softball games together back in Georgia. And he's actually, you know, he's developed a decent social media following and he's on camera and, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure he'll continue to, you know, rise the ranks, but even that stuff doesn't appeal to me. I never, you know, I, I dabbled in radio in college and I, I, I never did TV or anything, but I, that was always an option, but it's just, I don't know. It's just something I like enjoying as a consumer, not so much producing. It's you know, that should make sense. You have a couple comments, thoughts about it. Uh, is is one? I think it's always tricky. You know, I was just saying that maybe you should pursue your childhood passion as your career, but I think it's always tricky to turn your your joy into your job. I think it's always tricky, and it's like it seems risky. Like, man, if this is the thing you're most joyous about in life, what if you take that away by by monetizing it? I think a lot of people run into that um, mm-hmm. issue. And then the other issue is, what a weird time just his, historically to like enter into journalism like that, like yeah. um, the turn of the century. And then for us, like the end of the first decade of the 21st yep. century is such yep. a weird transition moment for journalism in general, not just sports journalism. Like I remember I took my freshman year, I took like mass media or journalism class or whatever. And it was like a ton of focus on like, you know, getting an internship at the newspaper and being a columnist yep. and da, da 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 And then I remember like just a little bit of talk about like 
towards the end of the semester, kind of, I feel like when we had covered most of like the traditional shit, you know, we would talk about like YouTube and it'd be like, I think like Google had just purchased YouTube and our professor talking yep. about like this YouTube thing is going to be a big deal. Like what a yep. weird time to enter the profession or like, think about Greg, the, 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 the journalist that we can point to as like the most successful one. He took a very traditional path. Like he was editor of the student newspaper, like a piece of paper yep. that you open up and read. Yep. Right. That's where you that's where you transmit information. And then he got a job at the Associated Press, like standing yep. in at the Atlanta Journal Constitution. It's like this very traditional step. But I don't know if that world really exists anymore. Like what are kids entering college as journalism majors in 2020? Like what are their classes like? Like it's got so like it's, do they have classes on like podcasting and like like uh, yep. like Instagram, <laughs> like Instagram no, stories so you, so you, or something? No, it's, so it's really funny that you mentioned that because we were, my class was a, was a transitional, uh, was a transitional class in itself because I was the last graduating class from the school of journalism in Georgia to graduate with a focus on newspapers. Like I was yeah. there, no one after me has newspapers written on their diploma. Now it's mass media. Wow. Or, or sorry. Now it's, now it's not mass media, digital media. That's the new, you know, focus. You can, you can go in and be in magazines, PR or digital media. And so that's, that's there, there's your, there's your watershed where it's like, okay, we're, we're cutting off this newspapers idea because we know it's dying. And I learned about Twitter in college as well, like in a class, like my, my journalism professor who was in the industry for 25 years as a reporter, um, you know, I think Twitter started sometime in the mid to, you know, mid 2000s, late to, you know, maybe like Oh four Oh five Oh six somewhere in there. Um, but it, ha it hadn't broken through to mainstream by, when I was taking classes. And I, I can distinctly remember this, this newspaper guy in his 50s, you know, trying to stay ahead of the curve, like mentioning in one of our lecture classes, like, hey, if it, if, you know, if you all heard of this Twitter thing, like you need to get on board. Like you need to you need to understand it. It's the way we're going to communicate in the future. It's the way that journalists are going to be able to get their I mean, stories out journalism. to the world. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. So, yeah, it was, it was a really interesting, a really interesting time for sure. And, and the way that, you know, folks nowadays uh, and I guess that would, that would be my one regret, right? Like I, I had a lot of really great professors um, in college, but the one that always comes to mind was this, this grisly old, you know, septuagenarian who, who was like a wartime reporter for the Associated Press, like the, <laughs> the quintessential, like the quintessential. And, and Greg and I actually had this, this same teacher, um, Professor Fink, you know, RIP, he passed away a few years ago, but, he was your just, you know, came in, he had the, he had the newspaper ink on his hands every day. Like he came in with that right. newspaper and he was just your prototypical stereotypical journalist. And right. he, it's just, a, it's just a bygone era. I mean, journalists aren't revered the same way they were back in his day where you're holding truth's power and you're, you know, in a big industry that's making lots of money. And so you have all this leverage behind you to, you know, interview presidents and hold them to account and like do all this amazing work that was, was being done in, in generations bygone. Like the populace looks to you as like the, the, the arbiter of information, like the person who has the information. Now everyone has that information. Like there's exactly, no, exactly. There's no gatekeeper of information. Yeah. The, the industry has been totally turned upside down because of that. Like everybody is a reporter. Everybody's a documentarian. Um, 
and yeah, there's no, there's really just no, I mean, people like that are, they're gone. Like, they're never coming back. You're never going to have a true source of news that's, that's, you know, like it's, it's weird. That's, but that is my one regret, like not being able to fight that good fight that like Greg is fighting where he is the most objective, like nonpartisan. And I know I, I have a, assumptions of where he leans, but anytime I've hung out with him I and mean, he holds his, his card so close to the vest and he is a true professional journalist. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of miss that. Or I, I kind of miss having that opportunity to like enjoy or to kind of like live that really like, you know, moral lifestyle where you're, you're really doing good or trying to do good in the world, I guess. Like it's not, you're not saving lives. You're not a doctor. You're not, you know, volunteering your time, but there is a very noble aspect of being a journalist. And I, I never really got to experience, which I, you know, that's the one regret I would have, I guess. Do you think you will have like, do you have any profession? Like I was, I started off this podcast talking about like, you know, I'm going to have to do something else to earn money after this nanny gig. And I, I right. can't think of anything I want to do. <laughs> I thought the other day, like I went to the beach a couple months ago and I see these dudes just like chilling in this like lifeguards like house at the beach. And they drive around these like cool Taco- Toyota Tacoma is on the beach with a surfboard oh, yeah. on it. And I'm like, yeah, I'd be kind of tight to be a lifeguard at the beach. But like, <laughs> like a fucking five-year-old saying that, like, I want to be. A Are you literally lifeguard. window shopping career paths? <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> I'm open. I love it. I'm open. I love so, it. But like, do you have any? Do you have any like professional ambitions going forward? Obviously, it's a different world now. So while the internet has entirely disrupted traditional career paths and exploded it, it also opens up you know career paths. You know, is there? Do do you have any? Like, do you think you'll change careers or pursue some crazy, I don't know, even passion projects or anything like that? Yeah, I really do, and I think that. You know, I think this is probably, I mean, this is obviously a big can of worms as far as the desire or lack thereof to have children. Um, but I do like having my options open. I do like, I do see a point where if, you know, if I did have a kid or two that, you know, I would have to stay on this kind of conservative uh, career path, you know, making good money. I, I have insurance, you know, my company is successful, blah, blah, blah. Like I, I all those, paycheck, all those, you know. Yeah, all, the, all those pillars kind of keep you on the right path because you need to do that for other people, you know, to support your family, blah, blah, blah. It's it's one of the reasons why I've got the ripcord still, where I can just be like, you know what, fuck it. I I work at Square for another year and, you know, have a lot of savings, and I just go, you know, I become a golf instructor at, like, a resort on the West Coast or something. You know, something yeah. like, I, that, thought is cro- that thought has crossed my mind probably every other month, where just because my buddy and I – um, I don't think you've ever met him. My buddy John and went to high school with Rochelle. He and I took a golf trip over the summer out to the co- West Coast, um, the coastal Oregon in this this public golf resort. It's like a bucket list kind of place for golf nerds. And so he's like the only other friend of mine who is, is in the golf as I am. And so we did that, and you know, we spent the whole weekend with this with the same caddy. And this caddy is a forty something year old dude who lives in like a one bedroom house on the coast of like rural Southwestern Oregon and just carries golf bags, makes tips and just seems like, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to be him, but that freedom that he had and like the ability to just like play golf and just live for yourself and not have to worry about anything is like incredibly romantic to me. Like that is very, very enticing when, and that's, and those, those pop, those thoughts pop into my head when I have a bad day or when like, I'm sick of like the, the bureaucratic BS that you deal with with a, with a, with a normal nine to five. And so I don't know if I would ever take that leap, 
but it's nice to know that I've got that kind of, I've got that ripcord available if I want to pull it, which I don't, if and I you, had kids, I don't think I'd be able to do. Okay. All right. So a couple questions. So you do, so that, that like, you do think that's a possibility to just kind of like drop everything or just like shake up the ex sketch, basically just like start over new career, new, new, new home. You, that is on the table for you. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. And so let's talk about the kids thing. You don't want to have kids and you think that in the primary reason for that, you think is that like you, you want the, you want the flexibility in the future to basically do whatever the fuck you want. Um, I don't know if that's the primary reason. I think the primary reason is much more semantics related, much more, much more like logistical because I just, I've, I have a lot of nieces and nephews and I I know what it takes to, to go through all that. And I just, I think about my day to day and how easily frustrated I am with like, just like being a dog owner. Like, I just can't imagine how frustrated I'd be to have kids and like not getting any sleep and all that kind of stuff. Like it's much more like, much more day to day, I think, kind of scares me about parenthood. But there is the more, you know, bigger picture stuff, like having that ability to kind of change careers and and just kind of fly by the seat of your pants a little bit. Like obviously, any any move that I were to make professionally or or, or physically or, or whatever would be with some safety net. Like I'm not just gonna I'm not just gonna quit my job tomorrow and just you know throw all my, you know, throw all my savings and, you know, into the stock market or throw all my savings into a lottery ticket or something and be totally off the wall. Like I'm going to have some sort of safety net to where I could make that jump, but I just know that the more, the more grounded you get with fa- with a family, like that, that just becomes harder and harder. And, and I, again, I, I, that might be just like a romantic kind of justification for me being a selfish guy who just doesn't want to change diapers and wake up at 2 a.m. Like, that by all means could just be like my crutch that I'm using. I would never actually pursue those, those lifestyle changes, but it's nice to know that they're still there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think the number one dude, you know, me, I've been, or I think this is actually kind of a revelation to you, but I've been saying for at least you've been hearing me say for the last, I guess, year, two, three, a couple of years that I, I absolutely want to have kids. Um, but it's interesting yep. though, having being a full time parents basically professional parents at least between the hours of 8 30 and you know 5 36 it's interesting man i would say a year into this job of raising a small human i would say i want kids less now than when i started um interesting yeah it is interesting and it's confusing for me i you know i definitely am still leaning towards i want kids but i'm not gonna lie dude like what you're saying makes a lot of fucking sense. <laughs> like a lot of fucking sense. That like. Well, that's just funny. <sighs> Sorry, I was gonna say that's just funny. That's just funny to me about you. That's that's just funny to me about you. You're such a you're such an enigma to me because you, on one hand, are very you know, like free living, kind of you know not tied down to anything or anyone really. But on the other hand, you're you're fairly pragmatic and you're fairly like logical in a lot of your thought processes and so it's this weird i bet you have this weird like internal battle about this because i see what i see what you mean like there's this, there's this whole kind of romanticized uh idea of having a kid but then you get your hands dirty on it and you're like well actually do i want to do that it's kind of this weird yeah because I, I don't because I, I don't have any of the romanticized stuff like i i don't i do not care about you know 
the little league games and you know the weddings and the graduations and all that like that doesn't that doesn't resonate with me at all yeah i think most people this and i this is going to probably be hugely well it's i'm not targeting anyone specifically i think most people have kids because it's just like the momentum of life like that's what you do as a human being you know you well just to, to really boil it down, like that is our primary purpose as human beings. Everything yep. is to reproduce and keep the species going. That is for every living species on earth. And humans are no different. Like our primary purpose is a sexual one, is sexual reproduction. That is the driving motivation for everything we do, if you really boil it down. Our number yep. one reason for being alive is to make more people, period. And actually, that is my number one motivator for having kids. It's not the Little League games. It's not the, like, weddings or high school graduations or whatever. It's like, well, this is what I'm here to do. And, like, right. you know, uh, and I try to – Which is very pragmatic. Out. Yeah. Like, this, of course I should have kids. That's my whole purpose of being alive. It's not to watch football. It's not to, like, accumulate numbers in my bank account. It's not to, like, have novel experiences. My number one purpose for being alive is to continue the legacy of humanity, right? And so I, right. if I'm going to do anything while I'm here, I should at least contribute to the human experience, right? We, we may be the only living or, like, sentient beings in the entire universe. So I should contribute to that, whatever that is, you know, I should. That's my primary reason for having kids. And then the secondary reason for having kids is like who I was raised by. I was raised by my mom who was obsessed with children and obsessed with like love and rainbows and obsessed is the wrong word, but she's an <laughs> extremely just like, she is just this like angelic figure. And you know, there is beauty. There is beauty in childhood. Like I think a child is love. It is an innocent being. It knows no, malice or ill will those things are planted in it by bad by a bad upbringing or eventually just by society in general right but a child in mm -hmm. itself is just so innocent and 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 pure that i do want that experience but when actually now having done it on a day-to-day -day basis like practically it doesn't sound that appealing like not sleeping not being like waking up and not being able to determine like you wake up every day and your primary like uh, determinant for what your day is going to look like is that child, right? It is the number yep. one priority of everything that you do. Um, and if it's not, then you're going to have a problem. And then in fact, you are going to end up contributing to humanity in a negative way. So then the, the, the situation flips. It's like, well, what if I do have a kid and it's like, you're saying I'm not all in on it or I'm like resentful or I'm not a good father. And then all of a sudden, maybe my net impact on humanity is a negative one because now I've raised like a broken human <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> you know? Right. So I don't know. Right. It's funny. I, I, I came here thinking – I came to L.A. a year ago, 100% I want to have children, no doubt about it. But it's interesting. A year later, I actually am entertaining like – and I've had a few a few conversations with you about it over the past year as well, and it's been very informative for me um, to hear you reflect on it because you haven't expressed any desire whatsoever – and I think, and dude, I don't know. I hope I've made this clear before. And if I haven't, like, I want to make it clear now. I think that's like, I think it is so not only refreshing, but like needed and beautiful that you don't. Because guess what? We don't need any more fucking humans on this planet. It's like, we got plenty of them. 
we need right. people to start, I think, start making that decision that, like, hey, I'm not going to, like, replicate myself. We don't need more fucking people. And like I said, I think most people do it, A, because that's just, like, well, it's our natural, our biology is telling us to do it constantly. But it's 2020. Right. Like, you can fuck and fulfill that biological instinct without like making a human, having a human come out on the other end. Like you can just you yeah. know, have sex. Um, but then I, I think it gets, I think in 2020, especially in the modern world, I think people struggle for purpose because it, and this ties back to the kind of theme I was talking about earlier about struggle, creating um, success. You know, I think in 2020, we, in the Western modern world, for most people, we're not struggling to survive on a daily basis. So if you're not struggling to survive on a daily basis and your survival is just given, well, you've got fucking 16 hours a day, 16 waking hours a day where you have to fill your time. (laughs) And, you know, if you're not feeling the pressure of survival, then you're just like existing. So I think most people like struggle to find purpose. And you can find your purpose in your work or you can create another human being. And guess what? Your perp- you've just, you know, you've just baked purpose for nine months and now you have eternal purpose because now this being depends on you. And so I think a lot of people like lack purpose in their lives or lack direction or meaning. They're not finding it in their, in their profession. They're not finding it in their relationships or their passionate pursuits. And so you just make a baby and then now all of a sudden you've got a purpose. And yeah, I mean, that's, I, I don't know if I, that's good or bad, but it's, I don't know. It's, I, I think I'm, we need more people. I don't, I just don't think most people, no, I shouldn't say most. I think there's plenty of people out there having kids who, tro- who don't want to have kids. And it's like, right. dude, we need less kids. We need less people. So like, don't have them. I think so yeah. in some ways, I think like your stance is a heroic one. <laughs> Honestly. Well, 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 tell me, so it's funny, it's funny, because I always wanted kids too, like, until the age of 25, 26, or whenever my, my sister started having kids, like, I always wanted them as well. Um, again, more from a biological perspective, more from a societal expectation perspective. Um, that's just kind of what you do. And so I think, and I've gotten in my own head now over these last few years, because we're way past the point, not past the point, but we're well into the later stages of being able to have kids. Um, you know, biologically and, and societally and financially and all that kind of stuff. Like we've been in the, in the, in the sweet spot here for, for a while and it's still not coming. And I keep thinking about it. Like I, I talked to my dad about it. I talked to my, my sister about, like, I talk a lot about it. And I think a lot about it. Like, it's definitely something that I'm not, you know, I don't, it's not flippant. It's not taken lightly. And what I, the, the conclusion that I, that I keep coming to is that, okay, I'm a, I'm a above average, I think at, at most intel of an of a, above average intelligence. So I'm, I'm the thought that I give to something has merit. You know, if I think about it a lot, if I'm really concentrated on it, if I'm really giving it a true, you know, con, you know, considerate effort and it still isn't something I want to do, then I just, I just think that most people who have kids don't think about it enough. It's kind of just like a, yeah. it's like a knee jerk reaction that, that, that this is what we have to do. And not, 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 that, not, not that they regret it or that they don't want kids. It's just, I think the default is to have them. And so the more and more, the more and more you think about it, if you still want kids, that's awesome. Cause then you're, you're probably gonna be a really good parent if you're like really considerately thinking about it, but that, you know, and this isn't really like people that we know, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm thinking, I'm speaking more like just general population, but people who will have kids just 
like again out of like instinct it's like oh well we got married so we gotta have a kid or i've been dating this girl for x number of years gotta have a kid or you know i want to just have sex with this person and i don't want to protect against having a kid so we'll just have a kid and just i'm doing the exact opposite where it's like i really want to make 100 percent sure this is what i want and it's not coming and so i just wonder if more people put that i'm not not saying that everybody should wait until they're in their mid-30s to like to, to have children, but I think that I'm just I, I'm in my head so much about it that I feel like it's the it's my own true feeling. Like I'm not making it up. I'm not you know I'm yeah. not pushing it off. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. 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 Uh, and I I think well the reason I think that your viewpoint on is is very legitimate is not only what you just said, like you're, you're thinking about this constantly. It's not for, you're not like pushing it off or ignoring it or like putting it in the back of your mind, you know, it's on yeah. the front of your mind constantly. And you're, you're voicing it with other people. Like you voiced it with me. I've, you've voiced it in conversations that I've been a part of that other people have been a part of. Like it's definitely been a thing. And then on top of that, you also got married in a, like a more, more traditional way. So it's like, you did follow a traditional path in that sense. And then you're just saying, right. no, but like, so you're you're also you're aware of that but then you're also making a very like conscious effort to be like okay yes i want this part of traditional lifestyle but no this part no that's a step too far and i think that's fucking awesome i really do i wish more people would well the other that. um well, well the other thing too yeah. like comes time back to the time back to the career barometers where i've got other folks to kind of look at of what could have been or what the hypothetical would have been in my career now i've got that as a parent like i've got four who's got two kids i've got jimmy who has a kid for Tori just had his first kid in the fall. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, did he? Um, wow. Yeah, he's, he's got a three. Everyone's got, three got a kid. Lenny's got a fucking kid. Hunter's got a kid. I mean, all of our friends <laughs> have kids at this point. Griff is pregnant. Yeah. So. Uh, so yeah. So I can see. I, yeah. Exactly. So I can see like I can see all those experiences, and I think that if you'd have told me when I was 27 that you know I would see all my best friends have kids, that that would just be a natural push for me to want to have kids. But again, it's just more fuel to the fire that I don't because I, I as much yeah. as I, as much joy as I get going, like I, I went up to Yentl and Yentl and Jimmy just moved into a new house in Smyrna and I went and hung out with them for uh, a little while to kind of just, you know, to see the new place. And, and Isaac is now 15 months old and he's running around and like, I love that. And I got to meet Ford's kid um, on New Year's because they're there in town and I got to meet him for the first time. And like, I get so much joy out of seeing my friends with their kids, but there's not a, there's really, I mean, I hate to, yeah, I hate to say it, but there's really no, like, there's no envy. There's no like jealousy of it. No. And I, it's, yeah. it's, I hate to say that because it sounds, it sounds really cold, but I, I just really love that for what it is. I really, I'm so happy for everybody that they're able to have children and, they, and that they're like diving right in and they're, like, it's awesome. I love it. I love seeing these little pieces of our friends that we've grown up with and these people, but it, it, there's no, no whatsoever um, jealousy or, or, or longing for that for myself. And that's depressing, but it's just the truth. I don't think it's, I mean, why do you say it's depressing? I, I personally, when I hear that, I don't hear depressing at all from my personal interpretation of it. I don't hear depressing at all. In fact, I hear the, I feel the opposite. I feel inspiring. I'm not just saying that because we're on the phone doing a podcast or you're my friend. I honestly feel inspiring. Yes, it, the depressing maybe because it's like, oh, well, isn't that what you're supposed to do? It's the only depressing I could possibly think is like it's, there's more of an unknown because that's not a traditional lifestyle. And having a kid is very known. Like 
that could, right. you know, the next 20 years of your life are very known. And even after that, it's kind of known, like those kids are going to have kids. You're going to be a grandparent. And it's like, and then you're, you know, you're visiting the grandkids. It's like, I can project at least generally speaking, the lives of these people that you just mentioned that are friends that have had kids. And so maybe there's some like fear of the unknown, but dude, I honestly don't find that depressing at all. Do you, why do you say depressing? Is that, well, I think that, that I think that I use, I think I use that macabre of, of a word just because of my upbringing and just thinking okay is it, am I is my lack of wanting to have a kid a byproduct of my upbringing that's the depressing part because if because if that's the case then that would, that would kind of suck I think if that's like if you cut me open and kind of did a full emotional autopsy like okay this is the reason that that I don't want to have kids because my childhood was a little bit scattered and I, I never really had uh, a traditional upbringing as far as your, your cohesive family unit and kind of, it's just a weird, you know, kind of a weird upbringing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it obviously wasn't as, it wasn't as, you know, difficult as other people's. Like, and so I, I don't, so I'm not measuring on a scale of difficulty, but just on a, from an emotional perspective, it was a little, you know, of a little bit of a roller coaster. And I'm wondering, is that the reason? Um, huh. Which I don't know if it is. If it is, I think that that could be depressing. Like my, if my environment and if my parents didn't, pass down like that DNA or that desire to have children that kind of that's interesting I guess depressing is a little bit of a hard term or harsh term but uh yeah I don't know that was just where my brain went initially was it it seems like yeah. just saying it out loud because I because I, I keep all these thoughts in my head so saying it out loud and vocalizing it just paints a picture of like man grumpy old Ben who's going to just you know die alone which is not you know which is not but the way I look at it die not, alone. Right. right. It's not like you right. have to bring your kids with you into heaven <laughs> or like right. everyone dies. I mean, more than likely we're all going to die. At, I mean, and then it's over. <laughs> Breaking news. Breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it, everything just fades to black and your, you know, your, your journey is over. Right. And, and like having kids doesn't change that. It's not like you have kids and then you get to continue into the afterlife because you had babies. You know, we're right, all going to die right. alone. At least you don't have to. Yeah. Like, uh, you should not have to answer that question to some eight-year-old who's like, "Why, well, Daddy? What happens after we die?" <laughs> well, nothing. Stuff <laughs> <stuck> black. <laughs> well, I mean, I've I mentioned uh, this in the past too. I've I mentioned this in the past too, and, it, and I think it's it, it's a really interesting topic uh, or, or, or idea on this topic, which is the 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 notion of selfishness, because I feel my desires to not have children is a, is a shine is a moment of selfishness because I know I'm too self-absorbed and want to do what I want to do when I want to do it so much that I don't want anything to infringe upon that. But I can flip the coin and say oh, that, I just about to say that. The, go ahead, please. Yeah. The tenant, the tenant of parenthood is selfish. Like you want to ha- have yes. more of your DNA in the world. So it's like, Holy shit. Is, is it selfish to have kids and not have kids? Like at the same totally. time, that's, Mind blowing. They're both selfish. They're both selfish. Yeah. But everything is selfish. We're all self motivated. Like don't get this notion out of your head that there's some there's like some notion of I don't know godliness or something. We're all selfish. Even me, like working in the in an inner city school, is selfish because that's what's going to give me fulfillment. That's what's going to get me out of bed every morning. That's you know I right. get to also say like I'm a special education teacher and fucking the inner city like there's there's some social cachet to that it's everything is, is that a good helpful. pickup line for chicks it used to be, is that- <laughs> used to be. <laughs> uh, 
uh, yeah, I mean, it has been totally. It has been, man. Like I went. Um, well, anyway, yes, it is. It is. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that was that was just a joke. But yeah, I know what you mean. Like there's there's nothing that's purely altruistic. Like there's all. I mean, no. there's definitely shades. There's shades of it. Like there's shades of selfishness. Like obviously, people are more selfish than others, and different acts are more selfish than others. But yeah, it's kind of like to me, it's kind of like racism. It's like you know, or or like attention attention deficit disorder. Like there's all these things that are painted as binary, but they're all they all exist on a spectrum. Like everybody oh, yeah. is racist. You can't you can't look past race. You can't. I mean, everybody has an attention deficit disorder. It's just a matter of how much it infringes upon your ability to learn. Like, I, 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 yeah. yeah. Anyway, you're saving <laughs> my fucking praise with both of those. You gave both of those examples back to back, like without context at first. I was like, wait, wait, racism, ADD. What? Where's he going with this? Uh, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Both of those. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible. Everyone has trouble paying attention and everyone is going to be uh, discriminatory about the color of people's skin and to some extent. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. I wouldn't say, I don't look at it as depressing. I mean, I think you need to, you need to be selfish in your evaluation in order to make this decision. It sounds like you already have. It's like, are you going to be happy? Does the thought of this give you joy or does the thought of this give you fear? And if the thought of this having kids gives you more fear than joy than don't have fucking kids. I mean, yeah. shit, I wish everyone would pretty... make that fucking calculus. I wish everyone would go to that calculus. I just, dude, I, I mean, I know most people are not going through this fucking calculus. Most people right. are just simply following the pre the steps that they know they're going to follow. They go to elementary school, they go to middle school, they go to high school, they go to college, they get a job, they get married, they have kids. Just because that's what yep. they've been told to do, you know. Yep. If you were, if you were raised, if we were all raised in the woods as like hunter gatherer nomadic people, these would not, I mean, we'd all end up having children, but we wouldn't know who they were. You know, this is not like some right. sort of like uh, definition or like pre-prescribed plan for success that you must follow. I mean, I wish people were much more individualistic in their choices about how, like where their lives are going you know, to go back to the whole living in the modern world in the 21st century. It's like we have that ability because we're not worried about getting eaten by lions or dying of measles, I guess now with COVID maybe. Uh, we're not worried about struggling for our survival on a daily basis. So we have the luxury of being born in this era of humanity to like basically customize our lives how we want them for the most part, you know. Um, so fuck, right. if, you don't, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. Um, but, I mean well, – and answer this offer more detail. Do you think that, so is that going to work out with like your personal life? Do you think, do you experience anticipate struggle or strife on this issue? And like these next couple of years, as you said, like you're leaving, well, you're kind of entering the final stage of potential procreation time, I guess, as a man, you could, you know, take it into your forties or fifties or even sixties, I guess, if you're particularly right. uh, potent, but like, right. I, how do you think you're going to navigate through this time? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? I mean, it's not a, it's not a solely individual endeavor. Um, yeah. So yeah, there has, there has been like you and I have talked about in the past. There has been times where, you know, Rochelle and I have, have talked about it. It's been very abstract. Um, Cause I think she knows where I'm at. I've kind of made that known um, more so than mm -hmm. she would like. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, we're definitely, we're definitely not on the same page. I'd say we're probably not in the same chapter, but I, I would say we're probably <laughs> closer. <laughs> I'd say we're probably closer aligned than, than you, one would think. 
but right. it's still an issue. It's it's definitely still an issue. I think that in her in her world or her eyes, I think if we just went off of all contraception and just kind of winged it and just saw what happened, and if it happened, great. If it didn't, great. Like that's kind of her mindset. Um, that terrifies me. Obviously, I think I mentioned that to you in the past. Like that kind of flip of a coin isn't really how I'd want to go about it. I want to make a very, you know, concerted, educated decision to, of when and, and how to do it versus just kind of letting it go. But at the same time, if that, if that was where we met in the middle where it's like, you know, we're not going to have an ovulation calendar out. We're not going to take, you know, hormones. We're not going to like plan it out. Like it's a freaking you know, game yeah, plan or something. Then and we just, and we just kind of, just kind of left it up to chance, so to speak. I can live with that. I think. Oh, I can live with that. Okay. I, I, I haven't heard it. That seems like a new. That seems like a recent development. I could live with that. Yeah, I, I just think you know. Uh, yeah, I, because I, 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 I could, well, and that, that's the ultimate selfishness. I think would be for me to say I don't want, I don't want children, so I'm just not. I'm just going to cut off all opportunities and, and, and infringe upon you know, my wife's ability to do something she might want to do. So I think that a good, right. a decent human being would try to find a middle ground, which I think is what that is, which is, you know, we, we're not, you know, we're not having sex every day. So like the, the likelihood of the whatever number of times on an annual basis, it's all going to line up is, you know, at our age, right. you know, it, I, you, you can do the math and it's not, you know, you, right. we're not 17 and we're, we're not hooking up. Right. Yeah. It's not a guarantee. I think it's a, it's a likelihood probably if we, if we really, yeah. You know, if, if we kept it up for the next two to three years or something, it would eventually happen. Um, but there's also that small chance that it doesn't. And so I think I could live with that. I could live with just rolling the dice at that point. Okay. But the, I mean, the real question is, could you, I mean, obviously you could live with it, you know, it's like you're going to have a kid and <laughs> kill yourself. Although I do think that happens. I think, I do think, I do sure. think that happens to people. I do think it happens to like people that didn't really want to have kids. All of a sudden they found themselves with, a level of responsibility that they never fucking imagined. And it's too much for them. And, you know, I think that does happen to people. Um, and it, dude, talk about a selfish act. Like that's the ultimate selfish act is if like you do have kids and you're like, you're just not man or woman enough to like handle it. But now you have someone who depends on you and you just decide to like, I'm out of here and take the easy way out. That to me is like the ultimate act of selfishness. Um, yeah, or, I mean, I guess even more so than that would be, uh, or not more so, but like also just like leaving, right? That's what my dad did. He didn't want to have kids. Right. He ended up getting a woman pregnant. He's like, oh, well, uh, <laughs> good luck with that one. Um, yeah, that's your problem. Which also, which also, yeah, exactly. Which also is very common, you know, even more common than suicide, obviously. Um, sure. How do our like more tradition? So most everyone, every one of our mutual friends from high school and college is leading. Um, a more traditional lifestyle, right? Like college, job, marriage, kids. And once again, no shade at that whatsoever. I don't. I don't want to be disparaged. Sound like I'm disparaging that at all. Um, other, other than Dave. Other than Dave. The, other than Dave, which is crazy. But even yeah, it is. Anyway, what out when you talk to our friend group about that? Those that are married with kids. What What is their response to you? Um, I don't know, man. Like honestly, I haven't really had. I mean, you. You're by far away the most, and Lenny, I guess, are the most that I've, most in-depth conversations I've had about this. Um, and, and I think I, I do that intentionally because I, I, I just, you know, I, Lenny can handle it because because he's just a certain personality type. But 
there's a definite there's a definite mood or vibe that I give off, or I think anybody gives off who doesn't have kids and they talk to people with kids, where it's seen where I'm 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 going through this inner struggle of do I want them, do I not? I, I'm leaning not, and if, if I just feel like it's if it's, if it's, it's not a fair fight. Like they, they have kids, so they're obviously going to say that it's the greatest thing in the world. And I believe them when they say that, and they're going to, you know, my sister is really bad about this when she first started having children and I was leaning towards not, you know, she's like, well, she was, she was trying to be like a salesperson for, for humanity. And she's like, well, no, you need to have kids. Like, you, like, what are you, like, what are you going to be doing with your life? Like all this kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, like you're the Man, hard sell like isn't going to work. Argument ever. Exactly. That's exactly exactly. That's exactly an argument that I was making before. It's like you lack purpose in your life, so you're going to make a human. <laughs> right. What? Right. <laughs> exactly. So, so that hard sell approach doesn't really work, and I, I would imagine that you know, again, uh, and all of our friends are new parents, like new. They're not. They don't have a 16 year old who's in and out of jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Selling textbooks. That's exactly. Yeah. No, but it's true, dude. There's this. It's so true, dude. Like this. It's it's hard not. I mean, these these little humans, right? These little toddlers. Their entire appearance is designed biologically for you to like fall in love with them. It's like a fucking puppy. Right. You can't help right. but feeling like a sense of attachment and love for like a beautiful little puppy dog, you know, but that's a biological yep. trick. That's a biological trick. So you don't fucking like throw them in the river once they come out, you know, that's, right. So right. It's very interesting. You haven't gone through the actual childbearing process where this fucking kid no longer thinks you're the coolest person on the planet or is entirely dependent on you, you know, thinks you're an asshole or, you know, whatever. So, yeah. Right. And so it's just not, a, and so it's not a fair fight. And, and, and the conversations I have with my dad, it's not a fair fight. Like, because he's my dad and I'm his son. Like he's not, he's not going to tell me to my face. Yeah. I don't think you should have kids. It was a mistake. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, your dad, your dad, your dad might say that. <laughs> I should, yeah, I but should anyway. <laughs> no, dude, but, but it's interesting it, uh, you say that, like not even joking, not even joking. Like I grew up with, I, I harbored a lot of resentment towards my dad uh, throughout yep. my adolescence and into early adulthood. And then once I got to a point of like being an adult and start having like serious relationship with the girls and then some girls like think, you know, having that thought process, like, man, could I see myself like making a human being with this person? And right. honestly has really not to excuse my dad's behavior by any means. Like once you have a kid, I don't think there's any fucking excuse. Even if, you know, even if you don't want to be with the mom, you know, you need that the bare minimum need to be financially supportive. Even if you're not going to fucking show up to baseball games, the bare minimum you need to find provide financial support but growing into adulthood like i honestly feel i understand my dad's behavior much more than i did when i was uh you know 16 or whatever because like fuck he didn't want to have kids you know he got his woman pregnant and like that sounds fucking if you're in a if you don't want that that's the worst news ever <laughs> so like i can understand just totally fucking bailing like it's a fearful cowardice tactic but i i mean i understand it from a rational perspective like fuck this right um right yeah yeah man it's a tricky well, one it's a i imagine like if you did have kids or anyone who has kids i would imagine a a switch flips and like all this, you're all consumed by, you know, your new person and you love them eternally. I would imagine that happened, but maybe not. Sure. You know, my other, my other, I've never had kids. 
my other thing is like, that's just a fucking conspiracy. How many of these fucking parents out there, like, who are saying the typical thing, like you said, when you, uh, you know, talk to new parents or parents feared, like, oh, it's the, it's the most, it's the best decision I ever made. It's the most magical thing ever. Yeah, I, I, like, like you said, you believe them and I believe them, but I don't know. I'm wondering, like, what percentage of them are totally bullshitting you? And of course, they're right. not going to, like, who in their right mind is going to, who has, like, a five year old and is like, dude, this is the worst decision I ever fucking made. Don't like if right, I could, right. I would, if I could get away with it, I would drown this motherfucker tomorrow. Like no one's going to say that. So how many people are thinking that though? I imagine I that they're thinking that they probably think, they probably think it multiple times a day. They just bury it deep. Right. So that's the thing. Like maybe there isn't a switch that just flips automatically and you're in love with your child. Maybe you like are born. Could you imagine? Could you imagine fucking like getting your girl pregnant and for nine months, like, fuck, 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 fuck. Is it too late? Like what, what's the date where I can like, we can get an abortion. Fuck. She's not going to get an abortion. She's not going to get an abortion. Fuck. This is going to happen. And then for the next like, 20 years, you're stuck with this fucking thing. Like all of your money going into it. Like constantly. Yeah. And you never wanted it to be there. Like I imagine, especially on a father's side, I got to think biologically on the female side. Like there is literally like, a like a neurological development that occurs like you are having that thing come out of your body i gotta imagine there's chemicals yeah. that you just can't avoid that make yeah. you be uh attached to the thing but i gotta think on the dad side like all your unless you're casey anthony oh right right <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. is that, is that not topical anymore <laughs> <laughs> I had to think about it. Casey, I was like, is that someone went to high school with? Who is that? No, no, uh, sorry. No, I tell her. She like drowned her kids, right? In the bathtub or something? <laughs> she taped her up in the trunk. <laughs> There's a great stand up bit when that happened. I remember hearing where it was like, the, I forget what comedian it was, but some comedian was like, uh, I heard those were bad kids. <laughs> like, I heard those kids were really whiny. Really messy, like sat too close to the TV, like didn't pick up the blocks. <laughs> exactly. Hey, those kids deserve it. <laughs> Jesus. But anyway, no, yeah, like man. your point, though. To your point, it's easier for the dads to leave. Yeah, but I, I mean, then again, think of like the rates of father absenteeism. You know, it's it's not it's not abnormal to meet a single mom. You know, so I guess there are a lot of dads right. who's like, fuck this. Yeah. Well, dude, I'm glad you're well, talking about it. You're one of the few. You're honestly the only person I know. I'm trying to think before I say this. Yeah, you're the only <laughs> like close friend I have that has had that conversation with me at all. Like, and so it's just been no a, it's just been a it's been a it's been a known thing for everybody else. Like, it's not even a topic of discussion. Well, with most people, yeah, it's not even a topic of discussion. It's just a given. Like, oh, yeah, I'm right. going to get married. Or, like, this is my girl. It's like, you know, it's not even, it's not discussed. It's like, this is my girlfriend. We've been dating. It's like, neither is the marriage discussed. Like, when we were in our early 20s and our first few friends got married, like, then it was like, holy shit, you're getting married? Tell me about that. Like, how did you decide to do that? Tell me, how'd you buy the right. ring? Like, what? Holy shit, this is crazy. And then now right. it's just like anytime, anytime I know anyone who has a long-term girlfriend or a girlfriend period, like my thoughts are automatically like, Oh, well, they're going to get married. They're going to have kids. I'm not going to like have an explicit discussion with them about this thought process. It's just going to happen. Um, right. 
What's funny because so, conversely yeah, I, on on Rochelle's on Rochelle's social side, she only has one friend that has kids. So it's like what? the exact opposite. Yeah. What? We have we have a girl she has a girlfriend a girlfriend group of around seven or eight that are all pretty tight and they all either went to high school um or like friends of high school friends and so they, they all hang out together and only one of them has kids. The rest and and I think the only two of the others are engaged to be married, but they're not even married yet, and the others are all like habitually single. So it's it's a really interesting and these girls are our dynamic are age, like late late twenties, early thirties, mid thirties. They're actually older. I mean, most of most of the, they're they're all thirty to thirty five. Really? So, yeah, which is kind of interesting because it kind of keeps us. I think if, I think if that wasn't in, in the equation, then we would be really lonely, <laughs> like because then we'd have right. nobody to hang out with. <laughs> You'd have to have a kid. So <laughs> yeah, we friends. yeah we need, we need more company. Yeah, we need some more friends. <laughs> Dude, that's how I feel now. I, I I need to I need to get out of this bubble like quarantine bubble and like get back to living life before I start making any plans with this, 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 this perpetual girlfriend of mine. I've been in this like up and down relationship off and on again for six years now. And we're, we're pretty much on again now. And, you know, I'm 32 and she's oh. 30. So now the, the conversations are moving towards that, towards like building a family, having kids, buying like living somewhere. But like, uh, we were just back home together and like I remember I remember I said something like that because I have no friends here in LA in quarantine none and then right. I remember we did mushrooms we, we 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 took mushrooms and we just like went for a hike in the woods and of course like I'm like climbing all the trees and like rolling around on the ground and like trying to like <laughs> swim in the lake like just being a total fucking child right and I remember saying to her, like, man, maybe we should have kids because I need to make make some friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't find these 35-year-old men to, like, go climb trees with me in the woods. <laughs> so, uh, oh my I need God. to get out of fucking quarantine and start making some friends before I start making some real uh, irrevocable decisions. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm, glad we, I'm glad we couldn't get together over the holidays because you're tripping in the woods. So, appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I had to be in quarantine. That was my quarantine. Well, that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I had to quarantine. I'm fucking with you. Okay. I don't want to talk about it here. Um, Yeah. All right, dude. Well, shit. I'm glad we ended on that because that was my number one thing. It truly is unique. And I think you should, well, with all people and all decisions, like truly try to consciously reflect and critically think any major decision you're making in life. And don't be swayed by society. I mean, that that's what I hope all, how all people live their life. And that's my big misgiving with marriage and the traditional lifestyle in general is I'm just like, man, 99% of people are going down this path. There's no way 99% of people have the same genuine desires. Like this does, right. this is the way people are living their lives. It cannot be reflected of their genuine desires at their heart because everyone is unique. There's no way everyone would, everyone's life would play out in the exact same way. That's, that can't be genuine. That can't be authentic. That has to be societal programming to a large extent. So, I mean, seriously, it fucking, it is like, it's like heroic to hear you say that like, nah, I'm not going to do the whole fucking kid thing. To me, that's fucking amazing. <laughs> well, I, I wish that everybody was as applaudatory as you are, but I know, right? Yeah, it goes. Flash forward to fucking three years, and you've got a fucking one year old. I'm still not sold that's yeah. going to happen, but I think that'll be yeah, it's possible. As well. 
it's possible. Well, hey, uh, I guess for part two, we actually could talk about like our relationship. I feel like we didn't really talk about us at all, but that's cool. Oh, that's right. That's right. We'll have you back on. Uh, we'll have you back on. I have no one else to talk to, and I like talking to you. You seem like uh, you're very engaged and interested in the whole thing, so we'll do it again. Yeah, that's true. We need you to talk about our relationship, but we're deep into it now. Um, all right, brother. 3.30. 3 hours and 33 minutes. Perfect place to start. Stop. Let's go. All right, man. It was fun. All right, brother. I miss you, man. I love you, brother, and um, we'll see each other sometime here soon when all this nonsense is done, done, died down. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Miss you, too. Love you, too. All right, dog. I'll talk to you soon, dude.